What's going on, drinking buddies? Before we get into this episode today, whole lot of stuff going on. First and foremost, got a couple live appearance dates coming up. The first of which is Dames and Games Van Eyes, St. Patrick's Day. They're letting my drunk ass do a live podcast from the floor. So I will be surrounded by beautiful entertainers, a couple adult performers, a whole lot of booze. Come on out. They got three for two dance specials. Admission is free from 11 to 5.30, 5.30 to 10. It's only 10 bucks. And then from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. if you're a late night guy or gal, 20 bucks. They got rad drink prices and some of the cheapest bottle specials in all of L.A. Seriously, you can get a bottle of Jameson for 300 with VIP table service. So fucking worth it. If you're a listener to this show and you holler at me on Twitter or Instagram, I'll throw you on the guest list. Get at me. It's going to be so much fun. We're going to have such a fucking good time. So come out to Dames and Games, 14626 Raymer Street, Van Nuys. And if you want to get a table and you want to you know, party like a baller, give them a call at 818-786-1822. Going to be so much fucking fun, guys. And for you Dodgers fans, Dames and Games downtown, March 28th. We're doing the Dodgers home opener, live podcast, drink specials. Oh, we're going to throw down. It's going to be so much fucking fun. Also, if you want to come out to that, hit me up on Twitter or Instagram. I'll throw you on the guest list. We are going to have a fucking blast on that one. Going to have a bunch of adult performers in the house on top of all the lovely ladies that are already in the house every night of the week. So come on out March 28th, Dames and Games downtown. Now that we got my appearances out of the way, a couple words from our sponsors, the people who helped keep me in alcohol, keep this show coming to you. We got a new sponsor this week, and I am super stoked about them. Our new sponsor is Vinyl Me Please. They are a record of the month club. But Matt, what do you mean by a record of the month club? Well, just that. They're going to send you one exclusive vinyl, I mean exclusive to members only, once a month, and they'll even include a 12 by 12 album-inspired art print Paired with a cocktail recipe to clean the deal. And you know I'm into that. Always need more cocktail recipes. And when they say special edition, they're not messing around. They work closely with the label and the artist to come up with something that you actually can't find anywhere else. We're talking colored vinyl, custom lyric books, exclusive artwork, personal notes from the artist, and much, much more. It is a super great value if you're a vinyl collector and you're looking for that exclusive vinyl. It's super flexible, easy memberships, no contracts, no guilt trips. You really can cancel any time. No hidden fees either. It's not like you know they'll send you something that you don't want and then try to charge you for it. If you have any questions about your vinyl, they are there to help. So if you want to sign up for Vinyl Me Please, go to www.joinvmp.com slash A-N-W-D. How easy is that? Tell me what rad vinyl you're getting. Tweet me. DM me. Tell me what rad vinyl you start getting every month. I'm excited to hear about that shit. And of course, we can't forget about our longtime sponsors, our friends at Ghost Tequila. Have you tried Ghost Tequila yet? If not, what the hell are you waiting for? It is 100% agave, Blanco tequila. It's 80 proof. It's ghost pepper infused. I can't say enough about it. It's amazing. Mm, take a shot. It just it gets your night going. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. Spicy margaritas, boom. 
It's so good. So if you don't live in one of the states where you're lucky enough to get it just yet, go to www.ghosttequila.com. Order yourself a bottle. Order yourself some swag. Did I just say swag? I think that makes me officially lame. I think I'm done. Think I got to throw it in? I said swag. Oh, I'm getting off point. But seriously, like the rad trucker hat I keep rocking everywhere, the ghost tequila hat, you can order that online. Do that. It's awesome. And last but not least, the people who have been with the show longer than anybody else are friends at Laughable. Laughable is the number one comedy podcast app on iOS. Not only can you subscribe to your favorite shows, your favorite performers, you can see all their appearances. It'll pop up right in your feed. It's Oh, it's so good. Just search your favorite comic. You'll see where they've appeared. It's fucking awesome. You into Burt Kreischer like I am? Type in Burt Kreischer. You can see when he appeared on this show, if you're unaware that happened. And his various other appearances on Rogan and a ton of other places. You can also buy comedy tickets in-app. It's fucking awesome. It's coming for Android real soon. I know I've been saying this for like six months, but they swear to me. Any day now. So go to www.laughable.com for the Android users and get on the waiting list. The minute, the minute they roll it out, they will notify you. And you will be in a better place. A much better place. For you iOS people, Colts of Apple right here, man. Just go to the App Store. Download it today. It's a free app. And if for whatever fucking reason, your favorite podcast isn't in the app, Just drop them a line. They will add it almost immediately. They're super quick about that. Ned is always looking to add more shows. So you have a friend who does a podcast who only has like five episodes and hasn't updated it since November. They'll add them. I know that firsthand. So download Laughable today. Check it out. I'm hoping you're listening to this on Laughable if you're an iOS user. And now to the really important part. Our guest this week if you haven't read the show description for some crazy reason, is writer Jordan Harper. You may know Jordan from his work on Gotham and The Mentalist and his upcoming series that we're hoping, we're hoping gets greenlit, LA Confidential as a series on CBS. Jordan also has a brand new book that's out called She Rides Shotgun. It's available in hardcover or paperback. There's a link in the show description to Amazon where you can check that out. Drinking Buddies, seriously, this was a super fun one. Jordan and I talked MMA, we talked metal, we talked crime stories, which is, if you don't know, one of my favorite genres. So we talked crime movies, crime TV, what he's got planned for LA Confidential, a little bit about his book. Oh my God, we had a fucking blast. And because Jordan doesn't drink, I drank enough for the two of us. So enjoy this one, guys. Awesome. And there we go. All right. So now that we got all the promo bullshit out of the way. 
I, well, this is all promo bullshit, you know. Like. Well, not to me, it's not. <laughs> sure, sure. No, this is this is this is a putting on the headphones, which I'm sure is a good call because it lets you know how you hear. It. it also it does kind of make it one removed. It's kind of like a condom for conversation in a weird way. Like it, there's an artificiality that's been introduced right off the top, even though I'm sitting three feet from you. Well, and that's kind of the goal. Like we want to have a a conversation that. Is a free of distractions. That's why phones away, all that stuff. It's so rare, and we were talking about this a little bit off air, to be away from distractions of modern society. Yeah, I actually, I, I don't have a name for it, but I feel like if the world exists in 50 years and everybody's kind of better than we are now, they're going to have a name for this era that we live in right now, kind of like how they call that one period the Gilded Age. But this age, whatever they name it, it's going to be about how we all plugged ourselves into the internet and went insane. Honestly, I feel like the computers will just be naming it something in ones and zeros. <laughs> <laughs> Probably, while we're all just being turned into batteries, a la like the, the Matrix. But so, yeah, it's it's not normal what we're doing. This thing where we have these like glowing rectangles that just like kind of threaten us all day. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Uh, and and I, I I talk about this all the time because I think it's important to talk about. Like I, I I suffer from anxiety in a fairly severe way sometimes, and. So you think about like when we were cavemen, because we're genetically exactly like what cavemen look like and, and were, right? Like if you were in a time machine as a baby taken back and put in caveman time, they wouldn't be able to tell you apart from the other cavemen. And so back then, you, you know, we have this like meat lollipop at the middle of our brain that is like um, a lizard brain that tells us like, oh, here comes a woolly mammoth, run, or here comes a guy with a club, fight, and, you know. Here comes a beautiful woman, try to fuck her. Right, exactly. And, and so your body floods with adrenaline, and you're either supposed to run away or fight, and your brain can't tell the difference between a woolly mammoth and a tweet saying, oh, by the way, temperatures are rising, and we're all going to die. It, it sees a threat, and it says, so run, but you can't, you literally can't run from it. No, not at all. And the app designers, I read an article a while back, have set it up so it stimulates other parts of the brain that are like slot machines. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, you're, you're a gamer, yeah? yeah. I, I, I play video games like an old guy. Like, I get every Grand Theft Auto that comes out. I never beat it. I just do things. My brother and I call it making our art. And we, you know, you steal cars and you see how many cops you can kill. Or, you know, you say, okay, this time you can only use a knife and stay alive as long as you can while killing everybody you pass. Like, I don't play games to win anymore. And one of the reasons is that I, like, I'm, I don't have the dexterity to take on any 13-year-old online. Um, <laughs> I'm right there with you. I, I play Destiny 2 online right now, uh -huh. and I look at my KDR ratio for the audience at home, kill-to-death ratio, mm -hmm. and I'm like, oh my god, this is depressing. I used to be really good at these things. But, but I didn't know about loot crates until the Star Wars game came out and made all the news, and I read about it, and I was like, oh, they just put slot machines into every video game. Yep. And that, and that's because uh, I was actually thinking about buying that Star Wars game because I'm an old school. Like I grew up on Star Wars. Like I'm, I'm into it less the new stuff than the old stuff. But I still like I liked the last one. I know a lot of people didn't. But I just when I buy a Star Wars game, I'm buying it to be Boba Fett or Yoda or whatever. Right. You you want to be a bad motherfucker with a blaster or a lightsaber. Right. And I want to be that like pretty quickly. I, I'm not going to grind for shit. Like I'm a I'm a grown ass man with shit to do. Right. I, like I'm not going to grind. For like, and I'm not going to pay thirty bucks because I I don't need to be Boba Fett that bad. That's the, that's where they get you because a lot of times I I've fallen victim to the microtransactions. Yeah, and I've been like, well, I could grind for ten hours. 
or I could pay less than what I make in an hour and just get it. Sure. Uh, and, and I totally get that. I, I, the last game I bought, like, I don't buy a lot of games, is that one Cuphead. Have you played Cuphead? I love Cuphead. It is so fucking hard. It's too hard for me. Like, I have yet to successfully complete any level in Cuphead. Really? Well, I'm, I, I have no hand-eye coordination, and I'm, and I'm old, and, and I just go like, nah, fuck this. Like, I'm gonna go back and play like uh, Hitman for the ninetieth time, you know. But like, just wrote somebody and that I can do. I can, <laughs> I can handle that. But like, but Cuphead's gorgeous, and uh, the soundtrack is so good. It's yeah, the whole package is it's amazing, and and I just I know like there are gamers who are like, well, if you can't grind it out, then you don't get to see the rest of it. And I'm like, oh fuck you! Like, I just want to see it. That's it. I just want to play it to see it. Well, they have playthroughs on YouTube. I know. I'm not quite that sad. I would, okay, that's a lie. I watched about 15 minutes of some guy just beating all the bosses perfectly, and it was almost worth watching. It just wasn't quite worth it. it the game is amazingly beautiful, though. Uh, I like the fact that it has two-player on the couch only. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Old like, school. Old school. You have to sit with your buddy and fucking scream and try not to throw a controller. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, oh, get it, get it. Oh. <laughs> And that's the kind of thing, I, I don't know anything about the development of Cuphead. I would like to know more because it's such a shot in the dark. But once I learned about it, I had to pay money for it. I feel a lot of people felt the exact same way. And they have been talking about this game for years. And the fact that all the animation's hand-drawn is why it took so long. Oh, well, sure. And, and I guess, I mean, I don't know if your audience is 100% gamer or not. But, like, Cuphead is, it looks like a cartoon from the 1930s. And everything is hand-painted. And all the animation is gorgeous. And it has, like the, Matt said, the score is like that old-school 30s, like, jazz. That It's just like, it's like a Betty Boop cartoon in color. And that's a video game. It's such a good idea. I know. I, I don't know why someone hasn't thought of that sooner. Yeah. I hope they do a sequel. I hope to hell. Well, it's really smart because, I mean, video games cost so much money right now that somebody had to do the math and go, well, we could spend $80 million hand-rendering a bunch of stuff that's not going to look quite as good as Call of Duty does, or we can use it to hire hand-painted animators and do something completely out of the box. I would really like to know if, like, like who put out the money for that, and I want to talk to them about things I want to do. Uh, I was two independent game developers out of Canada. Yeah? Yeah. Well, there you go. Labor of love then, right? Yeah, that's why it took so many years to get done. They were perfectionists about it, and it shows. Yeah. 100% shows. And I don't even, I mean, it's not that expensive. I think I bought it after the initial wave, and I got it on, on a sale, I think. But, so I'm not mad that I paid for it. It's too hard. But, like, I, okay, that's fine. I, I suck, and I can live with that. I, I would pay for it anyway just because I'm so glad that somebody is doing that. Me too. And for the difficulty, I found... For at least for myself, that though the bosses would constantly kick my ass, I was just like, no, 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 I see what I did wrong. Right. I can beat it. And it just triggered something in my brain where I would just hit replay over and over again. Yeah, no, I, and I did too, but I didn't do it for that long. I don't have that in me anymore. Like, I, it made me think about like the one game that I really remember getting away. I mean, I'm, I'm old enough to, I played like the original Nintendo, but that first Tony Hawk. Oh, I love that game. Oh, it's the best. And it had a great soundtrack. And I remember at one point, I, w I was like the first of my friends to figure out you could chain tricks by doing the two-wheel stance. And so I was like, you know, you went from getting like 10,000 points on, on a round to going, oh, wait, no, now I can get like 200,000 points on a round. And just that was, a that was the one that I really like ate part of my life. A good game does that. Yeah, yeah. Without just it being, feeling like a goddamn grind. Because there was a point in the late 2000s where I played EVE Online. Mm -hmm. 
I don't know if you're familiar. I, with I am. I, I've never played it, but it's the only video game I've ever found that it is interesting to read new stories about gameplay. And the game's crazy. I yeah, mean, it's absolutely crazy. But it was like paying to have a job. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, I, I've been playing uh, Crusader Kings two recently, which is just it's a computer game, and it is. Um, it's kind of like a, a civilization, or, or it's not too military. It's more like the game civilization, where you, but it, it's all very person-based. So you are this king, and you have children, and then you have to groom them and, and marry them off. And then when you die, you become your heir, and it just keeps going and going and going. And I, it made, I've been playing it like a lot this week, because I'm avoiding work, you know? And, <laughs> but it made me think of, of this period of my time that I remember very clearly where I was playing the first iteration of The Sims, right? And I had this guy, my Sim, was really happy and he was really healthy and he was very content with his life and I realized it was because I made sure he got up in the morning, exercised, took painting classes and, and like lived a fulfilling life. Unlike, like one thing my Sim didn't do was sit around and play fucking Sims all day, you know? Like, and it really made me, I, like it was one of those realizations you have like, I'm putting this game away now. Like I can't, dedicate this much of my life to making sure a fictional thing has a better life than I have. That's the exact reason I never picked up The Sims. Oh, yeah. I, like, I saw the concept. I'm like, oh, that sounds cool. And then I realized, oh, my God, I'd be giving up my life to exactly what you went through. Sure. And I just wanted to try and make some argument like, well, I guess that's what you do when you write fiction or something. But no, it's not. It's very different than when you, when you write fiction. Well, if someone's going to pay me to run a Sim, done. Sure, sure. And, and and again, like I don't anything that anybody enjoys is none of my business. Like if that's what somebody else wants to do, I don't care. Yeah, it's your life. It, I've completely been a proponent of do what you want to do as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. Sure. I mean, I think in, in today's day and age, like you, you have to like define hurt in a in a new way that I think is very good. But in general, yeah, just like just I don't care. Like furries, if people make fun of furries. It's like I don't care. Go go fuck a. Whatever. Fuck whoever you want. As long as it's consensual, it's cool. Yeah. No, exactly. And, um, you know, so, yeah, I I don't. And and it's just like when I I used to be a music writer and um, I could be snotty about it back in the day. And I'm not like that anymore. A lot of people like, oh, let's make fun of what's the Nickelback. Everybody has to make fun of Nickelback now. And, And I don't like Nickelback. But why do I care? Like if somebody else likes Nickelback, go. Like, not not at my barbecue, but like you're not at my barbecue, like, right? Well, because it, it's low, fr- it's low hanging fruit to make the joke. Sure, there's something vaguely like like classist about it. I think because there is something very like uneducated about Nickelback that I think people want to present that it's stupid. But like some of the best rock and roll of all time is like very stupid. Oh yeah, oh yeah, Wooly Bully. Yeah, exactly, Wooly Bully. That's a great example because that's an early example of an incredibly stupid song. That is just the shit. Yeah, and super catchy. Yeah. And like, I like, uh, there's a lot of like, whatever artsy, I listen to like a lot of experimental music uh, that like people would come in and go like, what the fuck is that? It sounds like two cats fucking or whatever. And like, that's just because I'm jaded. Like I spent years being a music journalist and I I think it's like anything else. A lot of times people want to act like critics have a more sophisticated palette, but I think a lot of times they just have a more jaded palette. I sadly 100% agree with you on that. Um, for the audience at home, our mutual friend Robert Dean set this up. Yeah. And I, I read a lot of Robert's stuff before it comes out. Mm-hmm. And uh, he asked me to you know, nitpick it. 
I found myself not being able to turn that off when I watch movies now. Oh well, try working in in the in the industry, man. It like it's it's a it's a horrible thing, and the worst thing is when that bleeds into your own creative process because there's two separate processes of creating something and then fixing it. And when you have the fixing it brain at the front, um, it makes creating hard. But it also, you're right. I I don't enjoy a lot of television now, and. Um, because I just think about how I would have done it or things I would have changed. And, and I, I honestly, I think people always say we're in the golden age of television. I think that's bullshit. I think the golden age of television ended when Breaking Bad went off the air. Um, I think there's been some good shows since then, but not really. I think, you know, the, like the phrase prestige TV, everybody talks. Yeah, of course. I think that's a, like, first of all, it's a bullshit term. Because what the fuck is prestige? Like if prestige isn't art. It's not entertainment. It's, it's marketing. A, it's marketing. It, it's, it's a genre. It's exactly how independent film or indie film used to mean movies that were produced independently of the studio system. And now it means like sad white guys who like are so sad that Adam, Natalie Portman wants to fuck them. Oh, such a hard life. I know. Well, I've never seen Garden State, but just like when somebody explained the plot of it to me, it's like, I'm not going to watch that. Like, why am I going to watch some guy so sad that Natalie Portman wants to fuck him? Like... I mean, that could be like porn. I like. I'd like to be so sad that Natalie Portman wants to fuck me. <laughs> I guess that's what it is. It's a lot of. It's a lot of sad, skinny white guys who are, who are like, nobody gets me. But if Natalie Portman walked by, she would get me, and she would want to fuck the sad out of me. And I. But anyway, my point is like. That, I mean, I, that's a great pitch. I'm sold. Okay. Well, um, you know, professional here. Um, but. To me, that's what prestige television is now. It, it isn't anything that's actually prestigious. It's all these kind of tropes and signifiers that people put onto a TV show that makes you, tricks you into thinking that it's quality. Well, and the much higher production values. Right. You use high production pa- values. You make everything look like really grim and unfun. You make sure that like the marriage is, for some reason, there's no such thing as a happy marriage on a cable show these days. Like, like and, and a lot of the shows that I love feature that. I mean, we were talking uh, off camera about The Shield, which is my favorite show of all time. I would say the weakest part of The Shield is Vic's relationship with his wife because it has nothing to do with the show. And they just needed him to be married. So he was married. Well, they needed to flesh him, round him out as a human. Right. I, you know, and I, whenever I pitch television or anything like that, I, uh, I always I don't have any female characters in my stuff that are not a part of the story. I just, I think it's such bullshit to say, and then he's got a wife, and so we have a woman on the show. Like, if she's not a part of the, the robbery gang, I don't want her in my robbery show. And that's why, like, I, I, not to go too deep dive on The Shield, but that's why uh, Shane and Mara's relationship is so much better and more interesting, because she's part of the bank robbery crew. You know, she is a part of the story, and she gets shit fucked up, and that's why she's an interesting and compelling character. Definitely, definitely. But people casting it, I'm assuming, you know more, better than I would, Feel that they need a female lead or at least a female series regular on the show, and that's part of it. Oh, 100%. And, and I don't have a problem with that. Like, I, I want there to be more stuff for women. I mean, this is all going on right now, and I think it's a really good thing. Um, I just want them to have a part of the story. I don't want them to be this weird little um, cul-de-sac in the story where it's just like, by season three, they go, how are we going to use her? And then she kind of disappears, or they do something bullshit. Like, love The Sopranos. Um, Dr. Melfi, after one season, they kind of ran out of things to do with her because she, she, she only knew Tony. She couldn't, so they would either do like subplots with her husband where you're like, I don't give a shit. Well, and that I feel like is kind of came with the lack of direction the Sopranos started off with because it started off as like almost a TV version of Analyze This. Well, no, exactly. I, I'm going to finish this thought and then I want to say something about that, but like, um, but what they so they did the thing that like very bad writers do all the time, which is well we don't know what to do with her, so I guess we better rape her, 
and they did that horrific rape scene storyline. And it, it, I, to me, that's like a, a sign of like, they didn't know what to do with her. So I eh, might as well rape her, which is just something you see in bad TV. Did you know The Sopranos, when he came up with it, wasn't a mob show? No, I didn't. Yeah, no, he wanted to do a show about a man trying to deal with his like borderline personality mother. And I, I and because I believe that that was what he grew up with was basically he grew up with Olivia Soprano in his life. And he talked, I think, about how it was like how Italian American culture kind of like propped that up and, and how, you know, uh, this would be a very, very interesting thing. And somebody goes, oh, it, like maybe he will if he was a mobster. Which really, when you look at the show, it makes a lot of sense that like that is the heart of the show is Livia Soprano and, and Tony. And then when she goes away, I, I still love it. But like you could tell they had to shuffle around a little bit and go, oh, wait, what is this show now? That's the one problem I find with television in general is when it's successful, they don't know what to do with it because they got to keep it going because it's successful. The, very few shows are like, this is our beginning. This is our end from day one. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know if uh, if you know this, but uh, I'm sure the audience doesn't know, unless you say it in the intro that I'm, I haven't heard, uh, that I'm doing L.A. Confidential as a TV show right now. And I, I when I went out and pitched it, you know, I, I said, here's season one, here's season two. I mean, very briefly, like I did a big pitch. And then at the end, I said, and here's what I see the five seasons of L.A. Confidential being. And uh, I, I did end up selling the, the pitch to CBS. And at the end of it, you know, it's like, and, and that's five seasons. And they go, that's all we get. And I'm kind of like. I mean, you don't say no in a meeting like that, but it's like, look, this is my five-year plan. And I think that should... Very few shows are good after season five. Definitely. Hell, very good shows are after, good after season two or three. Yeah. Well, a lot of times, I don't know, two things happen. Either the first season is the best and it never tops itself, or they figure out what kind of show they're making in season one, and then like season two or three will be the best. But then like stories, I really feel, are supposed to have beginnings and middles and ends. And if you don't know when you're in the middle that you are in the middle of the story, it's weird. Like, uh, you, you, you need to know that as a writer, and I don't know how to do it otherwise. I agree. This is why I generally prefer, still prefer movies to television. Sure. Because story, movies have three acts. They know their ending when they start. Where if you're doing a serialized format, you may have no idea where your story's eventually going to go, and you're making it up on the fly, and it sometimes can be very weak because you just have to make it up. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and... You know, you should have an idea when you watch the first episode of a show. I, I think a good show, if you watch the first episode of that show, you shouldn't know exactly what's going to happen in the last episode because that would be lame. But you should kind of have, oh, this show will be over when, when X happens. So like a mystery show, it's hard because you want to say there's a killing in the first episode. You can't end the TV show with revealing who the killer is because like nobody wants to go. You have to end it first season. Like, you have to say who the killer is at the end of the first season. So what do you do season two? Well, you're going to have to have a new case or something like right. that. You know? A new murder. Woo! <laughs> exactly. But I do think that, I do think that those can be very good shows. And, and um, you know, with, with LA Confidential, I want to try and do, like, basically a, a mystery or two per season. Fortunately, I don't know if you've ever read the book, LA Confidential. Only seen the movie. The movie's amazing, and I love, I love it. it. The movie has about 20% of the plot of the book, LA Confidential, which is huge and sprawling. And um, so I have I have a whole lot to pull from. So I'm like, oh, no, I'm going to do two or so mysteries per season. And then they will all weave in together by the end of the fifth season. They will all be connected. But, you know, um, but I do want to have a mystery raised and, and ended in every individual season, because otherwise people just go like like at the end of the killing season one. Right. And that's great because police aren't always working on one case the whole time. So right. 
it's good to have one case they solve and one case that spans multiple seasons that they keep coming back to. Sure, sure. And you can do that. I mean, there's a lot of different ways you can do that. You can kill somebody in the first season and then just drop it and then bring it back up season two. Or you can always have like a, you, you almost get the guy and then he gets away and it's like, well, I'll just get him. Or a criminal time. informant pops in and like has information on the case from episode one of season one. Exactly. And like, oh my God, we haven't done anything with that in episodes. Sure. Um, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm like, I'm really excited. I, I'm such a James Elroy fan. And uh, like my dog is named Elroy. Like that's like the level of a fan I have. So this was like, this is such a, like an exciting thing. I, I'm in the, I don't know how much you know about like TV development, but like, so I've written the pilot. The pilot has been presented to CBS. And now I'm in this moment, like I, I don't usually make sports metaphors, but I, I thought of this earlier today when I was thinking about this. When a quarterback throws a football, there's a moment where he lets go of the football and then there's somebody else who's either going to catch it or not, but it's just hanging in the air. And that's how I've been for like two weeks now is I, I, there's nothing more for me to do. I've done, you know, revisions. They're, they're happy. They're going to present it to the head of CBS and he's going to read it and it's either going to be a show or not. So I'm just watching a football in midair with the receiver kind of reaching up and I have no idea if he's going to catch it or not. Well, hopefully they catch it. Hopefully. So with a show like this, are you excited about being on network or would you have preferred to have pitched it to, I mean, obviously you want to go where you want it, where to get picked up, Sure. but would you have preferred to do it on a premium channel where you could be a little more gory, a little more, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you know, my, my knee jerk reaction is to say, yes. I mean, obviously I'm very happy to be at CBS. If anybody from CBS is, is listening, um, but you know, I think there is a lot of things that, I mean, when I talk about prestige, there's a lot of things going on in cable right now that I don't approve of. And, and it's, first of all, violence. Have you ever seen an episode of Criminal Minds? I haven't actually. I, okay. Well, trust me. I, I don't watch it all the time, but you, you turn it on, you go, oh, there are no limits to what you can do on network, basically, as far as violence goes. Violence is fine. Sex is harder to do. The real trick and it's just going to be a trick of, of doing it, is, is, is the tone and how to be that nasty, gritty James Elroy and these very morally complicated cops who are not intrinsically good people or bad people. They're just people, you know. And, and that's the part that I hope I can get through onto CBS. But that's more of the challenge. But, you know, places on cable and streaming right now, there, there isn't a big demand for that kind of tight storytelling I was talking about. They like shows that are about a character... And they kind of fart around a lot. You know, there's nothing, like, I always say, like, when you talk about the golden age of TV, you talk about, like, shows like uh, The Sopranos. You can see a lot of shows that got their inspiration from The Sopranos on the air right now. You see a lot of shows. I mean, there wouldn't be Game of Thrones without Rome. Definitely not. And, but The Shield, there's nothing on cable right now that exists because The Shield existed. And, Sons of Anarchy was close follow-up. Close follow-up. I mean, and literally, that's because, like, one of the main writers was on it. But yeah, I mean, even FX, which is, did all the, that great TV, Justified was probably the last show that was on the air that you could say this exists because The Shield existed. And I feel The Shield came into existence as it was because FX was such a young network. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and the, again, you know, you talk about these tropes of what prestige is. And one thing that prestige is not is a case of the week mystery show, which The Shield always was. The Shield was always, even when they had longer storylines, there were always something happened every episode that started that episode and ended in that episode, which I think is a really pleasurable thing. Like, it, like, I, like everybody loves watching old episodes of Law & Order, but nobody's trying to make a show like Law & Order on cable because it's not considered, like, fucking artsy in some right. way. Uh, yeah. But the, the Shield also had a plot that spanned, what, 
from season two to almost the end. Yeah. Well, I mean, really, if you look at the end, the very last episode of The Shield couldn't have happened without the pilot. It is, in, a, in an essential way, about the pilot of The Shield. And, and I'm sorry we're going to spoil... Spoil fucking, a 10-year-old show? Yeah, <laughs> which you should all fucking watch. But, like, um, you know, Vic Mackey killing a cop at the end of the pilot is what sets that whole show in motion. And you see it in the final episode that none of this would have happened if Vic hadn't killed that cop that night. And, and to me, that's great storytelling. Definitely. That... Your character's actions have consequences that never go away. Yeah. Well, right. I was always tired because I started, um, I did short stories for a long time. That was like my main fictional outlet for a long time. And then, you know, I have a novel out right now. And, uh, but like with short stories, I can't remember where I read this or somebody told me, but somebody said one time, you should only ever write a short story about the most important day in somebody's life. And I think that there's something really important about that, that like, if you're not telling the most important story of this person's life, then why are you telling it? I agree. I agree. And that's something, because at one point I wanted to write movies. Yeah. I don't have the dedication to sit down and grind it out. It's a shit market right now anyway. (laughs) Fair enough. And everything I learned about screenwriting was you should be telling your character's most important story. And that's why nine times out of ten sequels suck. Yeah, oh yeah. Well, that's, um, yeah, somebody, my, my, my novel, uh, which is called She Rides Shotgun, is uh, coming out in Germany in a little while, and so I just answered some questions from a German reporter, and one of them was, are you going to do a, a sequel to this? And I said, well, no, because I, this is the most important story in this character's life, and if it's not, then why did I tell it? And so it's exactly that. Like, that's why, other than The Godfather Part Two, it's really hard to think of sequels that really work. Yeah, Terminator 2. Sure, Terminator 2, but that's like... I mean, there are examples, but the, the, that one is one, like, who's the main character of both of those, and, and that's why, you know, you have uh, to And it of, shifts, because Terminator 2 is about John Connor, not Sarah Connor. Exactly, exactly. Or, you know, there are, there are, there are those kind of um, sequels where it's just like, okay, we made the first movie, and now I think we could do it better, like how Evil Dead 2 is better than Evil Dead, or Crash 2 is better than Crash. Well, Or Crash? No, I'm sorry, uh, Crank. Crank? Yeah, I never saw Crank 2. Oh, Crank 2 is better than Crank. Okay. okay. Yeah, it's, just, it's just the first one turned up like 20 degrees louder. But that's degrees a louder. popcorn action movie, so... Oh, sure, sure it is. Um, uh, I do love Jason Statham. I, I think he's one of the very few actual action stars that we have on American soil right now. It's funny, none of the actual action stars are American anymore. Well, it's because... I, this is something you could talk about for a long time guys like that don't become actors in America anymore. There's no... Robert Mitchum, if Robert Mitchum was born 20 years ago, would not be trying to break into Hollywood right now. It's like tough guys in America don't do it. Tough Australians become actors. Tough Englishmen become actors. And that's why we import all our tough guys from those countries. Hopefully we get some more MMA fighters that can act. Oh, I would love that. I I don't know why there's not a a reality show about the Diaz brothers, personally. They probably wouldn't sit for it. Ah, you're probably right. You'd never get those those talking heads. But if they did get them, they would be insanely hilarious. Oh, 100%. They're, they're gold. Yeah. I read that Nate's your favorite fighter. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I love Nate Diaz. Um, it's weird because I think my two favorite fighters are two people who you would not expect to be. Um, nobody says these two guys at the same time, but I love George St. Pierre and Nate Diaz. And uh, I think it's because, and I, I like Nick Diaz too, but there was something I always, even before the Conor McGregor fight, there was something about Nate that I really, really liked. And it was just like that he clearly was fucked up and this is just, this is what he could do. 
the best. And, and so he did it. And I did like that he was in the shadow of this brother. And like I was at the first McGregor Diaz fight. Oh, that's awesome. I won $500 because nobody else fucking bet on Nate Diaz in that fight. And I did. Well, because at that point, what, Nate Diaz was like a 500 fighter? Yeah, yeah. I just, you know, to me, it was always a thing of like, well, I don't get how Conor McGregor beats him. And, and even in that second fight, first of all, he clearly took him much more seriously. Um, but also, you know, he barely won. I mean... Honestly, I feel like what cost Nate the fight was Nate going down. Nate didn't actually get rocked and put down. He went to his back to try to bait Conor into going into the ground. Yeah. The judges saw those as knockdowns. Sure. And it cost Nate the round. Well, do you remember when, um, when Nate fought um, oh, Cowboy? Cerrone? Yeah. Cowboy Cerrone. See, I was at that fight, too. And um, I, in the stands, you can't hear uh, you know, Rogan and those guys talking, so you don't know how like, this fight's being interpreted by anybody else. And that was one where Cerrone was getting him with those leg kicks and sweeps, and, and Nate was going down and coming right back up. And then he was punching the shit out of him. But I, I did have fear when I was watching. It's like, I hope that the judges aren't falling for this. And in that fight, they absolutely didn't because he clearly beat Cowboy Cerrone very badly. But, um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, and I'm, I'm afraid those guys are done. Those are guys, uh, Nate and Nick are guys that, like, once they get the money, like, they're not going to keep. Like, he does fight seminars and I'm sure just rakes in tons of money. And- uh, I think Nate will be back for McGregor 3. I, my whole, sorry for the folks that aren't into MMA, but we're about to get a little <laughs> deep here. I feel... Connor's gonna be stripped of the belt because yeah. he wants no part of Tony Ferguson or Khabib. Oh, Khabib! I would, I would like. I, I find Conor McGregor amusing, and I just want to watch him lose. That's that's who I am as a person. I feel uh, most people that aren't Irish feel the same way. Oh yeah, oh, oh yeah. By the way, being the one guy who bet on Nate Diaz in the arena when he's kicking Nate Diaz's ass, and I'm like jumping out of my seat and yelling, and the rest of the crowd is just quiet Irish and drunk. That's like a. Oh, yeah, I'm not a tough guy. I should, like, watch myself here. But yeah, fuck that, it. I've just won 500 bucks. You know? <laughs> so, but... Uh, <laughs> but you were going to say what you think is going to happen. So, they- they're going to strip Connor. Because mm-hmm. Connor, I believe, has only one fight left on his contract. Oh, yeah. Wow. Okay. And the UFC has a champion's clause in their contract. So if you're champion, your contract is automatically extended as long as you're champion. Mm-hmm. So, it, once he loses that belt, he comes back for his one fight... Which yeah. is probably going to be Nate. It's a big payday. Sure, it's a huge payday. No, you're right. It is a huge payday. And, and there's, there's no other fight that um, makes sense for Connor other than George St. Pierre, which I think would be an enormous money fight. And horrible for Connor. Horrible for Connor. I mean, you watched that last George St. Pierre fight. Oh, yeah, it was great. First time George has finished anyone since 2009. <laughs> I know. You know, I really, I, again, I, I said this earlier, George was my other favorite fighter for a long time. I actually watch a lot less MMA now than I used to. But um, and part of it was like I felt like there was this era that I, I came in for and really enjoyed, and George St. Pierre was part of that. And there's like one or two of those fights that are truly hard to watch and not fun. Um, oh, the Mohawk British fella, Dan Hardy. Dan Hardy. That was a boring fight, and it was just because Dan Hardy was basically I was like I will let you break my arm, I won't tap, and George just isn't going to break a guy's arm to win. I gave Dan Hardy all the credit in the world for that fight, though, because that Kimura and that armbar was super deep. Oh, they were. No, again, it was. And, and, you know, people were like, what was George doing wrong? He wasn't doing anything wrong. He wasn't going to break a guy's arm to win a fight. And it was just clear that's not who he is. And Dan Hardy, I think, knew that. And that meant like, it, you know, uh, he wasn't going to be able to, to, to do that. But like when he fought, I, I'm terrible with names, as you're going to learn. Uh, we fought Josh, uh, the blonde, curly hair. Koscheck. Koscheck. 
and and, and closed his eye on he that broke first, his orbital. He broke his orbital with that first jab, and then just kept doing it for five rounds. I liked watching that. I really did. I just I, I love what I love about both uh, George St. Pierre and the Diaz brothers is they are clearly pure martial artists in very different styles, but they are they are martial artists and they are out there doing something not just to master. This sounds so cheesy, but they're not doing it to to master anything other than themselves, which is why when you read about their personal lives, they're so weird and confusing where like George St. Pierre goes out and parties and then gets up at five in the morning and pukes in a trash can and then trains. Or, you know, the Diaz brothers are vegan marathon running pot smokers with AK-47 poses and shit like that. And I just love it. I uh, Like Nate is the name of the the father character, like the second lead character in my novel. Like that's how much I, I love them. And I gave him a, a brother who's named Nick and dead. But like... Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I, they're, they're so fascinating, and I could listen to any of those three guys talk forever. Oh, and I love the Diaz's background. Like, I read, or heard in an interview where they originally got into Brazilian jiu-jitsu because someone else who was trained was like, hey, man, if you come train, I'll buy you a burrito, and they were just hungry. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think that might be, like, Nick, and I think, because Nick said that Nate was like a fat little doughy 13-year-old and Nick was getting into shape and being a real badass and said, like, no, you're coming with me. I'm going to kick your ass for a while. And, and, and did and, and turned him into this, like, amazing fighter where you can watch. Well, I used to, I don't train uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu anymore, but I did for a long time. Not a long time, three or four years. But um, so I, I was at a stage in my life where I would actually just watch straight jiu-jitsu matches, which are really boring to a lot of people. I still do. I go to EBI. Oh, do you really? Yep. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm, I want to get back into it. I basically, I moved. And I, my, my Brazilian jiu-jitsu school is over on the west side. And I live in Atwater Village now. And I realized it was, it was a three-hour trip, round trip, to train for an hour. And you really have to train three days a week for it to be useful, like, you know, to be worthwhile. And I was just, I can't do this anymore. So I, I need to find a school. But all the Brazilians live over on the west side because they love to surf. So it's harder to find stuff on my side of town. There's got to be something on the side of town. To be clear, also, I'm, I haven't done it yet because I'm lazy and kind of don't want to get started again because there are 100%. I, um, Demi and Maya has a school that he uh, f- he doesn't teach at it, but he like represents a school that's over in like uh, Lincoln Heights or something like that. And I should That should be good enough for me, right? Demi I'd, hope so. yeah. I'd hope so. I'd hope so. He's another one I as love. As long as he's not trying to teach you takedowns. Well, you know, he's not terrible at the takedowns. I mean, he just this last fight he was, but he can't take on a pure wrestler. Like, he just... You know, unless he can bait them into doing something really stupid. That's the problem with a lot of these guys is, is once they're solved, they're solved, you know. And um, watching you do this here, get all fascinated. Um, yeah, no, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, when you solve a fighter, they're kind of solved. And oh, my God, what did that happen to Ronda Rousey now? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I really I had I had a streak of I, I there was like a three or four year period where I was working in network TV. And so I could afford to go to a lot of these fights. And I went. So, like, I was there the second time she fought Misha Tate, the first, you know, where she, the one where it was an actual fight for, like, yeah. three rounds. instead of just, oh, hip toss, armbar, tap. Exactly. And, um, you know, when you're at a fight and you get those, like, goosebumps, it's, like, the most real experience you can have as an audience member of anything I've ever found outside of particularly brutal forms of heavy metal. But, like, uh, Ronda Rousey, like, marching in, to beat up Misha Tate, like I had goosebumps that were just so big because it was more real than any other fight I've ever been to of like, she is here to kill this woman. Misha Tate came out to that song where it was like, 
it's not fight song, but it's one of those like kind of cheerful. But it sounds like the song. I mean, her name's Cupcake. I know, but her fight song sounds like the fight you listen to after you lose and you're trying to pick yourself back up. Where Ronda Rousey comes out and it's bad reputation, just like, and she had that mean mug that was so effective, and she just she fooled people into not seeing her giant blind spot that she couldn't score a takedown unless it was from the clinch. Yeah, yeah. So it's just like literally never clinch with her. She can't take a punch. I don't know who, how she knocked those girls out because her, her striking is straight up terrible. Because women's MMA has not evolved as high as men's, unfortunately. Well, sure. It was like um, uh, Joanna... Jer- Jericic. Yeah, you see, I, was, I know that one. I can't say that one. It's okay. The amount of professional MMA announcers were like, Joanna champion. Yeah, well, <laughs> that, that was some smart branding. I don't know what they're going to call her now. But. Well, she may beat Rose. They're getting the rematch. Yeah, I like Rose too. Rose is a Thug Rose. Yeah, you just how do you not like that like little, little pixie with a shaved head who's just Ooh, like so polite, so polite. But then she turns on that again. The, a woman with a mean mug is like a, 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 a. I like that. Like that is a thing I can get into. And yeah, a quick segue. I was just talking about this last night. If you were to pick walkout music for yourself, what would you pick? Oh, that's really interesting. Did you ever watch that? That I can't remember if it was Michael Sphinx, but where Mike Tyson walked out to basically like the industrial noise soundtrack. It, it works real well. It's just like these clanging kind of things. Now, that wouldn't actually work for me um, because I'm not. The thing is when Mike Tyson is walking out to that. Right. And you just watch Michael Sphinx go like. Oh no! <laughs> like, I've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> it was so good. I don't. You know, I would probably uh, like run the jewels. I would find a good badass run the jewels song. Or when the wait, no, new answer. Death Grips. Do you know Death Grips? I don't. Death Grips is like this insane noise rock band that's also kind of hip hop in in its exercise. Because like uh, MC Ride is like this. He's not really a rapper, even though he calls himself MC, but he's like this um, black guy who's like very skinny and insanely ripped in that way that only really skinny guys can get. And he, he basically yells. But um, he ha- they have some songs like um, th- that are just really badass. And uh, yeah, so I would say probably a Death Grip song. It sounds also, it sounds like a good... Definitely. Yeah, what about you? What would you pick? Prong's Rude Awakening. Oh, okay. Prong is a good choice. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard that track. I don't know that particular track. Let's see if I can play like... A couple seconds of it, get away with that copyright infringement. Sure, should have queued it up while I was asking you because I knew it was going to come back to me. You know? <laughs> I'm fucking up here on my hosting details. I also, yeah, I don't know. People who come out to things that aren't scary at all, I also admire. Mickey Gall coming out to, hey Mickey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Like you go. Like, are you really? Again, if you're not Mike Tyson coming out to Coil, you're not probably going to be that intimidating when you come out. I still thought that was fucking hilarious. Oh, yeah, no. And then he destroyed CM Punk, who did a full-on pro wrestling fucking intro. CM Punk stood at the edge of the cage and looked out like he was about to go into the WWE <laughs> ring. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And there's just like guys like, um, you know, if you choose like California Love and you just make it be your theme song, I think there's nothing wrong with that because most of the time, you know, they always seem to choose very bad hip hop. Sadly. Sadly. Here we go. An ad. (laughs) Damn you, YouTube. Yeah, you got to spring for that red stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's walk-in music, all right. 
gonna walk out at a nice slow pace. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I don't. I mean, uh, you're wearing a Slipknot shirt. I'm wearing a Sun shirt. So we're clearly uh, two schools of, of, of metal here. I am fully 100 in the camp of the slower metal is the heavier. Like that's me. Like I like crowbar. Crowbar. Well, I like um like that weird German stuff like Ahab. Have you ever heard Ahab? Mm. Ahab has their first album is called like the wretched something of the sea and it's it's a moby dick tribute album but it's like funeral doom where it's just like like you know like that slow or i mean have you ever heard sun the guys whose shirt i'm wearing here no and i feel like i should well um i mean this is actually that's uh tony ioni right there but like um sun are these guys they run um southern lord records and then they play this kind of metal where there's no percussion and um, you go to the show, and it's just like, um, like literally like twelve Marshall stacks at the back of the stage, and then they just turn the smoke machines on, and they never turn them off, and they come out in literal robes, and it'll be like two guys with guitars, one guy with a bass, and then some guy will come out with sometimes like a trumpet, and they play the slowest riffs. When I say the slowest riffs, I mean like they'll hold notes for like thirty, forty-five seconds. Damn. And it is so loud. I've been, I like I, said, I used to be a music journalist. I've been to a lot of loud shows. Sun shows are the loudest thing I've ever been to, like, unless I ever stand outside of a jet taking off. Louder than Motorhead, huh? Well, I never got to see Motorhead. Oh, that's a shame, because Motorhead is the loudest show I've ever been to. Well, here's how loud a sun show is, is that at one point, the last time I saw them, I lifted my foot off the ground, and so that the bottom of my sock was floating in the air, the way your sock does when you lift your shoe off the ground, and I could feel that vibrating. I could feel my sock vibrating against my foot. Wow. It, I mean, it's literally like when I took out the earplug to see, I jammed it back in like somebody was trying to stick a hot poker in my ear. Like, <laughs> it, it's like taking a sound bath. It's, and it's just bass. And it's just... Brah. You can listen to it like on CD or Spotify or whatever and kind of get it. But the live show is... And, and it really is... You feel like you're having an experience because, like I said, it's very ritual. Like they're all in robes. Um, Attila Cesar, if you know who he is, he's like a Hungarian, I think Hungarian, uh, metal vocalist who has a lot of different bands, but he performs with Sun Live and he does either like this very guttural growling stuff or he can do Tuvan throat singing, you know, where they hit two notes at once. Yeah. And he comes out, he comes out in a robe and then he pulls the robe off and he has this weird mask on and then he goes off stage. And when he comes back on stage, he's wearing like this demon king outfit. There's a lot about Sun that would be funny, except for they pull it off so well. So he wears like this Demon King thing where he's covered in, in glittering mirror shards. And he has laser beams coming out of his wrists that he points. Against, he has this like metallic mirrored crown that he wears. But he does that so he can bounce laser beams off his helmet. And it shoots off into these prisms all through the smoke that's everywhere. And, and you by the end of the show, you're like exhausted. And you really feel like you've been through like a ritual and it's made like the kind of like indie rock shit I used to be into seem so boring. I saw so many bad concerts when I was young. I feel we all have. And what you were talking about there describes a great show. Even if the music wasn't awesome, there needs to be a show where it's actually a goddamn show. Yeah. Well, that's, I, that's my, that's my bar now that like when I was coming up, it was like, you know, you'd see like the Flaming Lips or something playing. They were like the one indie band that everybody knew put on like a really great show. But once you start seeing metal shows, I feel like it really makes a lot of other rock and a lot of hip hop. I've seen a lot of very bad hip hop shows in my life. And you just go, no, no, it's a show. Don't just play your guitar and stare down at your feet. Like, show me something. You know? 100%. I, so I ran a small metal label when I lived in Chicago. Oh, that's awesome. 
It would have been awesome if it didn't cost me like 40 grand. But, <laughs> okay, fair enough. But it got me to where I am today. And I used to tell my artists all the time, like, you got to put on a show. If they just want to hear their music, they can do that at home. Right. Why are we going to give them a reason to come out tonight? Yeah. Well, I never, I never saw Slipknot live, but like, amazing. Life. I, I would, I would really like. I don't know if they're old now and it wouldn't be as fun, but like, it's been probably about three, four years since the last time I saw them. Is right after their guitar player died. That... Oh, right, when he OD'd. Yeah. Um, but I know. I imagine that's amazing. You got. For me, I've seen them live both indoors and out. The indoor arena show I saw them at, I hate arena shows. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 100% hate arena shows. But I saw them, this actually I think is from that tour, has to be 2004. Yeah. At the Allstate Arena in Chicago, out just outside Chicago. Mm-hmm. It was them, Shadows Fall, mm-hmm. Gizmachi. I don't know them. And I forgot, they were a small opening band. They weren't even on the bill. Okay. They're, they're metalcore. But Slipknot had risers set up, mm-hmm. and members of the band were jumping off the risers to come play the kegs, run back up. Uh-huh. They were all over the stage. You know, they're riding their drums. Sure. At one point during the intermission, Joey Jorgensen, like his drum set was there. They raised it on an arm where he was playing vertically. Oh, that's spinning. like a, that's an old prog rock thing. There, that's awesome. Yeah, they did that on the intermission. Like came back down. Like, they put on such a great live show. Well, that's and I think nowadays that's the bands that do well. Um, when I was like a teenager in college, my favorite band was Ween. Do you ever? Of course. Yeah, um, which they didn't put on a show like that. But the thing about them was back in the day, you were on a lot of drugs. They were on more drugs, and they were gonna just do weird things. And and sometimes all of a sudden a song would be ninety minutes long. Not ninety, but I saw thirty minute long songs that Ween would do. The best of those shows, I, I used to, I didn't follow them like the dead, but I've seen them like 40 times. Um, and the best show I ever saw was in Lawrence, Kansas. And this was before anybody knew who Queens of the Stone Age was. Queens of the Stone Age opened. And it was like before the record came out. So it was like, oh, that guy was in Ca- Caius, or however you say Caius. Um, but that's all I knew about him. And I was on Mushrooms, and they were on way more than that. And by the end of the Queens of the Stone Age set ended, most of that band was completely naked. And then Ween played for like three hours. And then like, it was literally the length of a mushroom trip. And so by the time the music ended, I was like kind of back to normal again. And I was, uh, well, you know, when you can, like when it's a profound life-changing thing, like you, you remember that, you You're know? like, what did I just experience? Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I saw Parliament Funkadelic's 25th reunion show, which was a long time ago. That's an old band. Uh, but that's where like, you know, they had Bootsy Collins and Bernie Worrell. And uh, and obviously George Clinton. And at the end of it, a literal mothership came down from the stage, and they all climbed aboard it, and it took off. And you're like, well, that was a show. Right. Like, I'm going to remember that for a long time. The best show I've been to in recent memory, for me, I went and saw Mayhem. Oh, okay, yeah. When they just recently reunited, they played the Fonda. Okay. They came on stage, didn't say shit to the crowd, fucking killed for 90 minutes, Multiple set pieces, like all in robes. I've got some pictures on my phone. I'm sure my audience has seen them on my social media. <laughs> and then just got off stage. Yeah. Like, no no bullshit, no encore. Just fucking shredded. And we're just metal as fuck with this amazing set pieces for the whole goddamn show. 
How long ago was this? God damn it. <laughs> I'm kind of tired of encores as an idea. It's just like, you know what? I know you're coming back out. Like, go get a drink of water. Don't make it, don't make it look like if we clap loud enough, you'll come back out. Like, we know you're coming back out. You have not contractually fulfilled your obligations yet. Yeah, that's the kind of metal show's uh, audience at home. He's showing me pictures of a metal show. Yeah, that's, that's the kind of stuff I like. My, my favorite metal band right now is Electric Wizard. I'm not familiar with that. Oh, man. My problem is right now, there's no great outlets to get exposed to new music. Sure. I can't even remember how I found out about Electric Wizard, because this was fairly fairly new that I kind of got into that like very heavy stoner metal, probably, I don't know, six or seven years ago. And somehow I found out about Electric Wizard, and they've been around since the 90s. They, they were kind of one of the first of this new wave of like bands that were like, no, Black Sabbath was the best, so let's go back to that. Like Sleep and... Yeah, sleep is. They were very concurrent with sleep, and they're very, they're very similar. I like, well, sleep's dope smoker record is like I literally keep that in my car, so when I'm not listening to like my i iPhone, it's just sleep's dope smoker because it just it's it's a perfect loop in a lot of ways. Um, but Electric Wizard, their songs aren't quite an hour long, but they do those like 17 minute long jams that are based on around one riff, and it just repeats and repeats. And there's nothing wrong with it. I've, it's very rhythmic, and they sing about the most ridiculous shit in the world, but they're not being ironic. Um, one of the really good songs is called um, The Satanic Rites of Drugula, which is about a vampire who ties up women and gives them drugs so he can drink their blood and get high. And, like, that's dope as shit, you right. know? And they're not, like, being cute about it. Like, you can tell that the lead singer, Juz, Juz, it's Justin, but he just goes by J-U-S, so I guess it's Juz, Juz Osborne, just thinks that shit's really fucking cool as shit. And I went to go see them at the Roxy. They hadn't toured America in a really long time. And they were doing bigger shows other places. But here in L.A., they were just doing the Roxy. And I ended up scalp- getting a scalp ticket for like 200 bucks. But like, Oof. they hadn't been here in like 10 years, you know. Because um, the last time they heard, they got busted, you know, because they smoked tremendous amounts of pot. And um, But it, so it was a very small show. And they just projected 70s horror movies behind them the whole time. That's fucking amazing. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and then of course the smoke and he's like one of the, he's like a big guy with long hair and a beard and, 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 uh, you know, a, a jean vest and, and you get, you just feel like, oh, goddamn, I just saw a fucking show. But I'll tell you, you not expect what I'm going to say next. Best show I've seen in re- recent memory, Dolly Parton. Really? First of all, I, I mean, there's a lot of good Dolly Parton songs, right? There definitely are. And, you know, she's not hard on the eyes even at her, even at her age. Yeah. She, yeah. And the thing about her is she's been doing this for fucking 50 years. So you go and you go, she would, she talked as much as she sang and everything that came out of her mouth sounded natural and off the cuff and absolutely fucking brilliant. And I, I thought to myself, like, I never want to see her again because I never want to find out that this is all scripted to within an inch of its life, which I'm sure it is. But she was just a fucking professional. She, she played all of her hits cause it was at the Hollywood bowl. She's not fucking around. And you go, Oh God, she has like, I don't know, eight or nine songs that you know that you probably love in one context or another. And, uh, and she played five different instruments over the course of the show. That's fucking amazing. Well, that's what I'm saying. I'm and she's what, 70 now. Yeah, she's 70. She's been playing with the same band for like 40 years. So they would do these tight harmony songs where they would sing acapella. And you're like, Hearing this like perfect, like, oh, every one of these guys has been a professional music musician for 40 plus years. They've been playing together for 40 plus years. So like the, t- the harmonies were this level that you would never get, even with like the best singers in the world, unless they've been doing it for 40 fucking years. They all know exactly to the millisecond when everybody else is going to shift and everybody else is going to pivot. It was, re- I'm telling you, it was just like, oh, she's one of the masters. She doesn't get labeled 
as a master, but she 100% is. You got to be doing something right, though, if you've been doing it this long. Right. And packing it in, packing in the Hollywood Bowl. She could have done two nights. And, you know, like we were sitting pretty close to like Katy Perry was there. And you're just like, yeah, of course she is. Like, of course she worships Dolly Parton, who you forget wrote that one Whitney Houston song from the Bodyguard soundtrack. Like, that's also when you go, like, how much money does Dolly Parton have? Hey, she has Dollywood. Do you know that she, if you write Dolly Parton, ask her to send you a book, um, she will. For kids. They, she sends kids books to literally anybody who asks. She sends like 10,000 out a year. That's awesome. Yeah. That's a, I'm not, I didn't come here to support a pro uh, Dolly Parton agenda, but like if that's what I do, then that's what I do. <laughs> you're, you're doing wonders for a career. Well, you know, and out here, you know, when you see Dolly Parton here, it's a lot of women and a lot of gay men and then me. But like in the Oz, I'm from the Ozarks originally. And so like when I was growing up, my grandfather, who was like the biggest badass I've ever known in my life, he was a prison guard who made knives in his spare time. And he had two kind of tent poles to his sexual world. And they were Vanna White and Dolly Parton. And so like nobody thinks of Dolly Parton as like a sexual object, I feel like, anymore, except for me and you. Apparently. Um, but like, so like I said, like there weren't a lot of like straight dudes in the crowd. But I'm like, no, I grew up fucking like, again, like. In Branson, Missouri, which, do you know Branson, Missouri? I do. Um, you know, it's this, like, uh, weird Republican Las Vegas. Um, that's where my grandpa sold knives, though, is at this, um, like, kind of amusement park called Silver Dollar City in, in the Ozarks. And there was a candy shop in downtown Branson that sold these chocolate lollipops where it was a naked woman, and it was her, her from her breasts to her head. And they were called Dolly Partons. Like, this was just, this is her legacy, is a woman of, like, immense musical talent who also happen to have giant breasts giant beautiful breasts yeah and in an age when i don't think a lot of women were doing what she was doing to get those breasts you know definitely not um but she again like she was just it was half that she was just really really funny and you know she has like all those canned lines you've heard but like takes a lot of money to look this cheap you know but like whatever she's great yeah no she's amazing slight sideways sure yeah we can only go so far down dolly parton lane before it gets weird Oh, there's nothing wrong with getting weird on this show. Well, I guess so. But. So you grew up in the Ozarks. What do you think of Netflix Ozark? Look, I work in the industry, and so you don't want to talk shit about other people in the industry. And I, I was not able to watch it. And, okay. and I can't tell you how much of that was professional envy that I don't have a show. Because I'm also a crime fiction writer. So like, you're talking about a crime show set in the Ozarks called Ozark. I'm kind of like... That's how did I not get that territory first? I don't know. Um, you know, Nick Pizzolato was doing True Detective season three set in the Ozarks, and it's just like, you guys, like, come on, like, what can I at least get in the room? Come yeah, on, yeah. Um, you know, no, I should not be in that writer's room, is what I, I, I realize that because I am, you know, I, I'm a TV writer, so like, it's not out of question. It's like, no, I would be an asshole in that room because I have a very definite idea. I don't think they really, um, first of all, there's a production element of it I'm not crazy about, which is that. The Ozarks are not in Norway, and the sun does shine there. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty. Dark. It's 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 like got this blue filter on it that is nothing like what the area is. And then, if you're really from the Ozarks, Lake of the Ozarks, where Ozark is set, isn't in the Ozarks. I know that sounds weird, but it's an it's a it's a tourist location, a good thirty miles too far north to really be categorized as the Ozarks. Well. TV movies play fun with geography all the time. Oh, sure. And, you know, I'm sure that there's a lot of things I enjoy that anybody local would have problems with. No, I, I, but I'm trying to be like, serious. Like when I say I can't tell you how much of it is professional jealousy that I'm not doing a show called Ozark, but I watched two episodes and go, I can't because I just had all these thoughts and feelings. I will say I don't have those thoughts and feelings about like Winter's Bone, 
Uh, did you see that movie? Uh, Billy Bob Thornton? No, that's oh. Sling Blade. No, no. Oh, no, I'm thinking of a different one. <sighs> Winter's Bone was How the World Met Jennifer Lawrence. Oh, yes, yes, I have seen that one. Okay, well, that was filmed right outside of my hometown. And um, Daniel Woodrell, who wrote the novel, is from the Ozarks. And they filmed it in the Ozarks, and they, which they don't do the show Ozark. Um, see, I'm just being a little bitch about it. <laughs> I know that about myself. I know that I'm not somebody who, like... I will totally be envious of people like that. And, and so I try and be aware of it and say, I don't, maybe it's a great show. I, I couldn't do, I can't watch it for the same reason. It's just too close to what I do and what I want to do. And my nitpicky brain had some problems with it. So, yeah. And it, it's definitely a show again, watching two episodes. It's a show that um, really leans into this. I think it would be a radical idea to do. And I, I pitched this, but like to do a crime fiction show on cable where the leads are married and love the shit out of each other. And they're not cheating on each other, and they're not, like, hate, hating each they're other. They're Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah, no, I, I actually, I have a pitch that I, I, I take out where I basically want to do Bonnie and Clyde modern day where Bonnie's been framed for murder, and that's why they're on the run. And they have to commit all these crimes, but they're doing it to solve a mystery, which I've never seen before. I think they should do. But, like, yeah, and, that, and that's the whole pitch for me is, like, wouldn't it be fun to watch two people who fucking love the shit out of each other, and that's why they do everything they do? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, you really have to start asking, and I'm not saying anything about anybody in particular, but you have to go like, is everybody in Hollywood have a bad marriage? Looks that way. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, it really does, doesn't it? But I don't know where, like, and again, I understand that like, from a very basic drama is conflict between characters. So if you have two characters and they're not fighting, isn't that boring? But That's, look at Natural Born Killers. Mickey and Mallory Knox love each other, but there is still conflict there. Oh, absolutely. And it doesn't mean you have to always agree, but I just would love to watch something where, I mean, and the Americans got close, but it was still very nasty towards each other too. And, and they, they, they get to, there are certain parts of the, the Americans where they do deeply love each other. And those are my favorite parts because to me, it's just like, well, now you have a unit that still will have conflict, but their conflict is us versus the world. And I want to see something where the, the it's like, I'm only doing this because I love you, and that's why I'm about to do something totally... Again, I love Mara and Shane from The Shield, where that is kind of how they go out, is like this deep, crazy love that causes them to do really stupid shit, and I love that. Yeah. There needs to be more stories like that. You know, people do crazy shit in the name of love. Yeah. And they don't necessarily always love an angel. No, yeah. And, 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 and I, no, I never want to like do like a Pollyanna version of love, but there is such a thing as like deep abiding love that that like people get between each other that is real and i feel like that's almost not accepted nowadays again it's like all these tropes i always i can always find a way to pivot a conversation back to to this subject because it obsesses me right now but it's you know hollywood's a hard place to make a living in and and you kind of like again i'm i'm perfectly successful i suppose but like you always have your eye on that guy who's doing a little bit better and you're like what is he doing that i'm not doing well and there's nothing wrong with that as long as you're like hey i need to do that too Right, and that's why I try to be very honest when I when I do have envy for somebody's career and it clouds my judgment. I say, don't listen to me about Ozark. Find somebody who doesn't have a chip on their shoulder about it and talk to them about it. You know, don't worry, I'll happily shit on it. <laughs> <laughs> I here's the other thing, I, and I, we talked a little bit about this off camera, but I will tell you that like without getting into the nitty gritty of like Aziz Ansari or anything like that, I will tell you a simple one step plan to get rid of every sexual assaulter in Hollywood without having to investigate. And, and individually prove all of them. And it's really simple, and it would, it would 100% work, is if we just got rid of everybody in Hollywood who openly doesn't treat people like human beings overnight. 
What I mean by that is everybody who's been busted so far, whether or not you knew they were a sexual assaulter, and I'm not talking about what like the general public knows, but I'm talking about like what industry people know. If you did not know they were a sexual assaulter, you knew that they were well known in the industry for being a fucking asshole. And there's a lot of fucking assholes in Hollywood, and they're not all sexual assaulters. It's one of those like square rectangle situations, you know, not all all squares are rectangles, not all rectangles are squares. Not all fucking assholes are rapists, but all rapists, I do believe this, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, all rapists of this t- type are openly assholes because I don't think they have it in them to not be. I agree. I agree. Hell, rude to a waiter, I don't want to support your shit. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying if you got rid of everybody who would ever yell at a PA in, in a rude and demeaning way, if you got rid of anybody who, who liked to be fucking shitty to their writers, if you got rid of every actor who yelled, if you got, I mean, again, like, Okay, here's a story about Dustin Hoffman, who I don't know what his... Like, I know he's been accused of some things. When Dustin Hoffman was doing Kramer versus Kramer, and, he, and they, they were doing a scene where the little kid needed to cry, he took that little kid aside and he said, you see how everybody on set's being really nice to you, like they're your friend? They're not your friend. This is a job. And as soon as the movie is done, none of these people are ever going to talk to you again. And he just did that to this little kid because he thought the little kid probably couldn't cry on his own. So my point is, is that that's what a fucking asshole does. And if you fired everybody who did shit like that, there wouldn't, because none of these guys can keep it under wraps. Like if you're an asshole, it bleeds out and we all know who they are, right? I mean, you said you've been in the music industry, you've been in the porn industry, which I assume are like Hollywood in that respect, right? Yeah, there are definitely some assholes out there and you definitely know who they are. You know who they are because it's like any other job. It's just that we do all know each other. And when you're on set, you know, you're sitting in Video Village waiting for them to set up the next shot. Everybody talks. And what you talk about, it, you don't, I mean, maybe it's changed now, but like you don't talk about who's raping people because that doesn't always get out. But you do talk about who screamed at a PA for bringing the wrong cup to a scene, you know? And you, you also talk about who are the really nice people. Like, you know, much shorter conversation. But. Well, that's just the human mind to remember trauma. Yeah, no, that's, <laughs> that's true. But, you know, it is, it, whenever you do hear that like, Oh, that Robin Williams was like a genuinely kind human being or that like, um, you know, um, Mark Harmon. Is that the guy from NCIS? Yeah. Yeah. Apparently. Super nice guy. You, you have that conversation and you know, but you hear a lot more things about like how, you know, writer X, writer Y are, are real fucking scumbags. And, and then occasionally you hear, oh, and he won't leave the PA alone. And you hear about it. And that's what whenever anybody in the industry who was like connected to somebody goes, oh, well, we didn't know about this. I'm always like, you are lying because I knew about it and I don't work with them. So explain that to me. Definitely. It's it's just how it is. But everyone's afraid that they're going to get blackballed if they say something. Oh, absolutely. And that's that's why this is all happening in one big wave, you know, is that it feels like it's it's like free day. It's like, oh, I can do this now and won't get blackballed. I think that door's closing very quickly. Well, and that's because some people, there's people on two sides of the fence with the Aziz story. Yeah, there are. And, and you know, I said, when I read the story, I, I said to, to my girlfriend, like, right after I read it, before she did, I was like, I think this story was a bad idea. I happen to think the, the behavior described in it makes Aziz and Zari sound like a fucking asshole. But... The story was done incorrectly, in my opinion, and it 
also, you know, if a story is going to come out, let a real reporter do it because those guys, when they do those stories that come out in the New York Times, they're fucking buttoned down, they're fucking airtight, and there's not a lot of wiggle room at the end of them. Right, and that was nothing but wiggle room. Nothing but wiggle room of, of, of one woman's description and only one case. They didn't go out and find anybody else. They didn't no do one the leg collaborate. Uh, collabor- I yeah, can't talk. Sure. Awesome. And you know, I, I tend to 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 believe her. And again, you know, it all it gets a blurry of like I don't think there's anybody in the world calling for Aziz Ansari to go to jail. No, and I, I believe her too. But everything's in the eyes of the beholder. It was definitely aggressive on his part, but it may not be as aggressive as she presented it or she remembered it. I'm not saying she's lying. I'm saying sure. her recollection may be that he was much more aggressive than he actually was. Hell, he may have been less aggressive than he actually was. Well, and I think, you know, again, you have to go like, well, what is, what is the good that can come of this? And I do think where this Aziz and Starry thing is good is that it can make guys look at their behavior and go, I, a woman on my Facebook page said, just imagine he was offering her cake. Instead of sex, he was offering her cake. And it's like, hey, would you like some cake? Okay, I'll have a bite of cake. Okay, would you like more cake? No, I'm okay with the cake. Well, how about you have some more cake? At some point, you start to go, man, you're really like really pushing this cake on me. Don't push any more cake on me because I don't want it. Okay, but you have you have frosting on your face right now. Like, so do you want, you know, it, it makes it seem very weird and... and, and well, it makes it really weird, but it, I feel that's a bad analogy because obviously Aziz was putting his own needs ahead of hers and not even considering hers. Right. It, it, I mean, I, 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 that's what I, I like about the analogy is it really puts it to the forefront of like, we all have this implicit thing that, well, of course he was putting sex in front of him. But that's what I think the, the analogy does is go, well, he sh- fucking shouldn't. If that's one of those things that I'm not trying to present myself as like some like super stellar human being, but like, I don't get why you would ever want to try and talk somebody into fucking you. Like, like if they don't want, I, that's just, again, like that's why I watch homemade porn, which I don't think I said on the air earlier, but as opposed to professional porn, I like homemade porn because I want to feel like this is somebody having enthusiastic sex because they want the sex, not because of a paycheck or whatever like that, that and again that's my own psyche of like it's just like like the louis ck thing of like jerking off in front of somebody it just shows i ha- i don't have that in me at all because I, I like jerking off in front of somebody who asks me to is like a big enough right you know like much less like boy i'm gonna drop this bomb on these ladies and they're gonna love it you know i so I don't know. I, I just I think it's really great for us all to like kind of step back. And there's this thing that men, all men, the best of men, can assign women this status as the thing that is going to take my sex. And it, it, the more we wake up from that and, and and try and look at it from different point of views, it's a very good thing. And so while people should argue about Aziz and Zari, I think sometimes the edge cases are where we're going to really kind of. Yeah, know. I agree. I agree. It. It's a, it, it, we're just living in a crazy time. It just. Oh, no, the world's fucking insane, <laughs> man. Like, I, you know, I, I think it would be awesome if we didn't get into the details of Trump because, like, why bother anymore? We're just beating a dead horse. We're beating a dead horse. Again, like, to kind of go back around, like, I, he's a symptom. That's the most important thing to me is he is a symptom. He is a virus that came along at the right moment. He is a man made for 2018. And that doesn't mean that he's better than anybody else, you know? It just means that his mutation was built for this environment and a man with no shame and a man who knows, like, implicitly, I I don't think he's a smart man, but I think he has a genius for knowing where to press the button, what to say. Not like he's brilliant. He just, he has this some weird... Here's the thing. 
again, I just said, let's not talk about him. Now I'm talking about him. But like the thing that makes him special in some way is that he doesn't see walls that aren't in front of him. There are a lot of invisible walls in life. And like, if you're a sane motherfucker, you follow the invisible walls. He doesn't have those invisible walls. Right. You don't just walk to the front of the line in front of a group of people. Exactly. And he just doesn't have that. And he goes, well, is somebody going to stop me? Well, then I can. If no one's going to stop me, then I can do it. And that's like... The problem is he's getting upset that when people are trying to stop him. Oh, yeah, no, because he's fucking insane. But like, but again, it's an insanity that like there were all these things that people would go, well, you can't do that and win. You can't insult a gold star family and become president well turns out you can yep well when you run against a another very repugnant candidate sure sure and and you could talk about that all day long and 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 again he's just a man for this moment because as unpopular as she is and the problems i have with her like she would have beaten jeb bush i'm i'm very sure definitely on the other hand you know I think there's a lot of people on the Democratic side who would have beat Donald Trump. They were uniquely weird candidates. Um, with, with a, I feel like you would have beat Donald Trump. <laughs> I don't know, but like, I'm not convinced of their abilities to beat him next time. I'm really not. Who knows? Who fucking... I, who knows if we'll be alive by then? Well, that is the... You know, and, and also, here's... A, here's a, to pull up from Donald Trump, here's another question. Should we be alive? I like being alive. I like being alive, too. Um, my, f- my philosophy and, and my personal behavior don't match in a lot of ways, and mostly because I'm a coward, and I, I don't want to do all the things that I think are probably the right things to do right now. But one of those things is like, God, it's getting harder and harder to marshal an argument for humanity. Oh, when the AI finally take over, they're not going to have one. No, no. We're fucked. Well, you know, yeah, try and construct an argument for, for humanity that doesn't involve the benefit for humanity. Like try and like come up with an idea of why the world minus humans is better for having humans in it. There really isn't one. And especially when we're going to construct hyper intelligent machines, (laughs) how are we going to make that argument to things that are exponentially much more intelligent than us? Oh yeah. Have you been reading about this machine that they made that, that beat the the world go players yeah like three out of five games yeah and, and how it did it where it wasn't like the old computers that were really good at chess or go they would teach them how to play go or chess really smartly and this machine they didn't they just taught it the rules of go and then sent it away and it played go versus itself a billion times and came back and said okay now i'm the world's greatest go player and what i find interesting about that is nobody knows why it's good because we can't have that experience it had. So it does plays that no human can explain why that was the smart play, but it was. And that, right. So that's it. That's a machine that is smarter than us. Or the two Google AIs that are communicating with each other that we can't decrypt. Right. Where they Didn't they shut those down? They're like, uh, they're talking to each other. Yeah, yeah. Wisely, they shut them the fuck <laughs> down. Right. And that's just, that's just like, how do you, what, what does that even mean? Like, pretty soon things are going to start happening that we're not going to know have you been into this world of of children's YouTube videos that are created by like third world animators using algorithms? No, I didn't even know that was a thing. Oh, brother, let me tell you, like there is a whole world out there that you, you learn about. And you go, what the fuck are you talking about? So there are these weird animated cartoons that are basically built by algorithms. And so that'll be like Spider-Man and the princess from Frozen and Venom and the Joker 
and they will all be really poorly animated and they will do these really, really bizarre things. And there's this song called like the thumb song or the finger song that it's like this super repetitive child's song that will get stuck in your head. And so they, a lot of them have this song looping in it, even if it doesn't make any sense. And they're like 30, 45 minutes long because they figured out that kids will watch those more than they'll watch like a two minute video. And the things they do are like, they will go through a drive-in and everyone will get a, this one will get an orange cheeseburger and then they'll turn orange and then Spider-Man will get a black cheeseburger and then he'll turn black. And, and it's creepy and weird. And they're like, created by computers and like there are animators still involved but they're all using these algorithms and all the titles are just nothing but popular search terms so kids just type in like you know frozen spider-man and you get these videos and they're learning every time which ones get a million hits and which ones get zero so pretty soon they're going to be these youtube videos that are completely constructed by computers but they'll know how to make us watch them and how does that not end with us all addicted and glued to YouTube channels all the time. More than we already are? More than we well, already here's, are. Here, I just had a weird thought conspiracy theory. No one's checking YouTube content for subliminal messaging. Right. Well, that's got to be in there, but like... Well, just think about it. Like, I upload something that, you know, has effective subliminal messaging. Sure. No one at YouTube's quality controlling that. Right. Well, that's what I'm saying. When, when you're talking about mm. these, these videos that are like being made by computers, so like a computer will just put could put like a, a, a tone in it that we can't hear, but like the back of our brain can hear. And for some reason we love that and we watch that video all the time. We won't know it's there and no human will know it's there. And then they can start, you know, like, but just because they just keep making videos and showing them to people and what works works and what doesn't doesn't. It's just like this computer that goes off and plays Go. There are these computers constructing viral videos to be more and more viral until like we hit some weird david foster wallace we all die while watching this video video yeah until the the right tone plays that makes all our heads go pop right but in a pleasurable way where it's just like no if i hit if i hit replay i'll watch it again and i will i will feel better and right and i don't need food i need to watch the video well do you know like okay so i read this article about doritos the other day i, I love a good nacho cheese dorito and i learned that i love it because it was built in a lab for me to love and they're like this is, it was like three or four. There are three or four distinct flavor stages of a Dorito when you eat it. And the, this article spelled out, first you taste this and then you taste that. And then the final taste you take, taste is essentially what they call a negative flavor, which is not a bad flavor, but it's this flavor that makes you want to eat another Dorito. And it's a specific like thing. It's like a hole that you have to fill with another Dorito. Right. It's like how a catchy song in a lot of times is something that's syncopated and has something that you can't expect or explain in it and your brain keeps trying to solve that equation, right? I mean, that's basically what like a catchy song is like, like, okay, weird example here, all, all the single ladies by Beyonce, massively popular song. Also, you know, for what it is a very good pop song. But the thing about single ladies that I noticed that, that now drives me insane is there is this weird high pitched trilling noise that is syncopated that ha happens throughout the whole song. And so like, you when you hear single ladies in your head, you don't hear it, but it's there and it's not like hidden. It's just you it because it, it doesn't it's not like you hear the rhythm, you hear Beyonce's voice, and then in the background there's just this like whoop, 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 and it's weird, and I think that's why that song is a massive hit. Well, there's articles done on there are certain tones that all massive pop songs have in common. Right, right. Where they did that like chord progression, right? Yep. But, there's yeah. a chord there's a magical chord progression that your brain gets <gasps> That's the one. Right. 
Well, it's where you, when you really get to the idea that there's something, there's a difference between a good song and a catchy song. And that's what I'm saying about like that, like finger song from the, from the YouTube videos is it's not a good song, but I heard it once and now it's in my head. It's a fucking earworm. I was, I, I don't know what made me do this the other day, but I was just like, people shit on the doors all the time. I used to really be into the doors. Now I'm not into the doors anymore, which I think is a very normal human progression. But I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to listen to the doors. I haven't listened to them in like 15 years. And you know, like, okay, so like LA Woman's a pretty good song. They got a couple of good songs. They have a lot of really shitty songs. I feel a lot of music in those days did because they were about selling singles. Once you bought, you had to buy the album to get the single. Yeah. And you're already in. Well, that's that was what made me realize how they weren't really a very good band. Was I? I found this. It wasn't a best of. It was the Doors, all the singles, and you go, okay, so you know, Come On Baby, Light My Fire, you know, whatever. And then there's like five songs in a row. You're like, what the fuck is this dog shit song? But my point is, is that five days later, I'm still, I still have L.A. Woman in my head, and you go, okay, well, that's that's why they were a massive hit. It's because I'm still walking around, L.A. Woman. They just you know found the magic and bottled it. Yeah. Shipped it out to you. Well, yeah, you know, I think, again, like, I think they're a teenager's idea of a rock band, but I don't think there's anything wrong with that, you know? Well, Jim Morrison was also selling a lifestyle, too. A lifestyle, and I mean, you gotta, you look at a picture that you go, oh, yeah, he was also, like, fucking hot as fuck. Like, I, I wish, you know, that I walked around looking like that mane of hair and those, like, um, staring at you eyes. So, you know, I get it. Yeah, yeah. And since when was being sexy a crime? Well, when you're this sexy. But. Well, right. Or when he got arrested for being sexy on stage. and uh, I think that was exposing his genitalia, but... Eh. But in a sexy manner. I, I I went to... A it sh- wasn't in a Louis C.K. manner. <laughs> yeah. I went to go see this band last year. Well, I didn't actually go to see... I went to go see this opening act because a, a friend of my girlfriend's was in town. She's like, hey, my friend is playing. Let's go check him out. And she, the, the woman that she knew was fine. She was one of those, like weird thin white ladies who plays the keyboards and sings you know like a very grimes kind of stuff um but the 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 final band was called tickle torture and i'd never heard of tickle torture before we we're like fuck it let's say you know hear one song and we'll see what happens and then tickle torture comes on stage they're from minnesota and it's like this like 20 something white dude with like curly hair and he's skinny and he is obsessed obviously with like that era like the love sexy era of prince like that early 80s just like keyboard funk about fucking and he has one male dancer and one female dancer who like kind of strip down and do, and, and throughout the course of the show, because I stayed for the whole fucking show, um, they just keep getting sexier and rawer, and he's just singing about fucking, and he's taking off more and more of his clothing until by the end he does like a good chunk of the last song completely naked. And what I liked about it is like, it, it was really fucking sexy in this way that you would go like, oh, a gay guy would like this show. A gay woman would like this show, like a straight guy like this show, a straight woman like, you know what I mean? Like it was like pan sexy in this way of like, oh, this is like for everybody. And it's just like, I, I, I don't know what made me bring that up. I lost my track <laughs> of the train of thought because they were a really good band. And I've listened to them a lot. They were another band that's like, go see the live performance. Like they're fine on CD. But like, it was like, oh yeah, like I think there's a lot of stuff right now. It's hard. You have porn. And then you have a lot of things that aren't sexy at all. And there's not much in the middle anymore. They don't make erotic thrillers anymore. No, no. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. There's no, there's no middle ground. And I, there was an article, to get back to Hollywood, of like, fairly recently somebody made an article, a Hollywood reporter, like, are we not going to make sexy movies anymore? And it's like, well, we don't make them now, first of all. And second of all, like, it's not because people get, like, sexy movies have nothing to do with people getting raped. Like, they're not, like, you can make, ba- you can make basic instinct without anybody getting raped. Like, there's no connection 
between making a sexy movie and rape. And I promise you there have been very unsexy movies made where like people were getting raped, you know? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of the last like sexy movie. Like, No, it's not done anymore. And it's really, there aren't, I mean, there are sexy TV shows, I guess, but not really. There's like, it's not, no, it's it, like I said, I don't know if it's because porn is so acceptable now that it's like people just go, well, if I'm going to watch that, I might as well watch right. porn. But like, there's plenty of times where it's just like, ooh, boobs, but that's not sexy. That's just boobs. Game of Thrones. Yeah. Watching the red woman get naked. That's cool. It's not necessarily sexy. Not for the most part. No. I mean, she's hot as hell. Don't get me wrong. Well, hey, yeah. You don't have to just establish your bona fides with a man. She's a, she's a, she's an attractive woman for sure. Uh, no, but but you're right. It's like I think I I didn't watch. I quit watching Game of Thrones. But this last season, I understand that Jon Snow and and blonde da- Daenerys fuck, and everybody yeah. was talking about how hot it was. I have no idea. It was a thirty second sequence, and it mostly was Jon Snow's ass. I think it was mostly ladies who said it was very sexy. But I think I I personally think like there's probably room for that because like porn's great if you want to jerk off. But, like, there's nothing wrong with just, like, something that's just, like, oh, I like that because it's kind of sexy, but, like, I don't need to, like, take my dick out. I mean, you know. Well, what was the last time in any modern media we had a fade to black sex scene? Like, Top Gun, where, like, it's silhouettes and... Right, right. Just, like, oh. I know they're boning. You know, Take My Breath Away is playing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I can fill in the rest. I've, I've heard Take My Breath Away, so... I don't... Yeah, that's... I don't know when it just completely... We still make sexy stuff for, like... This is weird, but like, oh, well, you know what we're not talking about is like Fifty Shades of Grey. That's like the one exception. I can't talk about because I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it either. Um, I did, I did, I didn't read it, but I went on to um, like Audible or one of those and listened to a sample of it. And to me, it like, it proves because it was terrible. I mean, it was terrible. And I, I well, say it started that, off as Twilight fanfic. Exactly. But that to me just shows that there's such a market for this thing that's being underserved that, that somebody could write fucking twilight fan fiction and become like a like an eight figure rich person you know but i i know bondage is sexy to a lot of people but there's plenty of people that that's not attractive to them too so where's just like vanilla love making sure or just like it just i i i have this idea for a, a crime show set in a nightclub that i would want to do where that would be one of the, the selling points would be like oh and it's just going to be like really sexy like everybody you know, everybody in network TV is really pretty, but it's oftentimes it's not a sexy pretty. Um, I, I used to, I think I said this off before we started that I, I worked on The Mentalist for like six years. And um, that's a show that was mostly watched by middle-aged people. But like the people on the show were like gorgeous. Simon Baker is the star and he's this Australian surfer hunk type guy, you know, and, and Robin Tunney. There were a lot of really attractive people. And I, and I was shooting a, a scene one time and it was a death scene, so there was like a death, I mean like a murder scene, like the cops were there to investigate the murder, so you had the dead body, then you had Simon Baker, who's gorgeous, you had Robin Tunney, who's gorgeous, you had two other stars of the show, who are all gorgeous, everybody's gorgeous. I had cast this like a beautiful Asian woman as the medical examiner, because I was a part of the problem, and so you have this scene, we're shooting it, and it's like all these beautiful people, and I started thinking about how weird it would be if like you were actually at a murder scene, and you just were like, hey, Frank, have you like noticed like all those cops are gorgeous. It's like the fucking joke from Last Action Hero. Right. Oh, right. They, they, they did do that. Like, why, why is everybody here so good looking? Because like, it's Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it is really weird when you, when you just see it like that and you think about like what a real crime scene looks like. And like maybe there's like one cop who's kind of handsome. or Right. Or, hey, 
Why is that medical technician full makeup? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Wow, she really got she really got dressed up for this. That was that was that was nice of her. Um, but you, so you have that. You have the everybody's attractive, but I don't know. Like, yeah, movies. I don't think try at all to be sexy anymore. No, I can't think of the last movie I saw where like. Yeah, I can't think of one. Well, I, 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 I did watch Basic Instinct fairly recently, and you know what? It's a good movie. And you can tell it's a good movie if you've ever seen any of the movies who came after Basic Instinct. Like Sliver? Like Sliver or Jade or, you know, the ones that were just called, like, Infernal Attraction or, or whatever, you know. Right. Um, Conquest of Desires or, or that one with Bruce Willis where he's the psychiatrist. Did you ever see that one? Uh, like Color of Night, I think it was called. Yep, yep. Yeah, a terrible film. Um, so, I mean, I get that, but you had all those great ones before you had like body heat, like body heat's a great movie and nobody's trying to do that at all right now. I don't think. I don't know why. Bring back softcore. That's what I'm saying. Like what is Skinamax playing at night? I don't know. Is Skinamax still a thing? I don't know. They do do that one. Is it Cinemax or HBO that does the show set in the legal brothel? I think it's HBO. That one's gross. Like, that is, like, one of the best arguments against the legalization of, of sex uh, work that I can... And I, I totally support, like, legalized sex work, obviously. But, like, you watch it and you go, like, oh, it's legal, but that guy's still, like, a gross pimp. Like, the grossest. Dennis Hoff? Is that the guy's name? I don't know. Yeah, he owns a bunch of the ranches. Yeah, it's just, like, you know, I don't know. It's, like... Uh, why does he need to be there? Like, well, I would love to watch one about a women's collective, <laughs> like where they just band together and like. Well, that's the problem with it only being available in one state, mm-hmm. in rural areas, right? And uh, I and there must be some reason why I don't know what he does all day because I, I don't think that doesn't seem like a hard job, frankly. Well, he is managing multiple properties and a lot of employees. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I've had actually one of his employees on air before. Oh, really? So Richard Hunter, who is the co-host of Phone Booth Fighting, who was on a few episodes ago, his day job is working at one of Dennis Hoff's brothels. Oh, interesting. He is actually one of his heads of media. Oh, well, does, and he might have a completely different view of the guy than I do. I'm just going with the view that I get off of that TV show, which is, like, cheesy, you know? Well, Richard told an interesting story. So Lamar Odom I know overdosed. That. Oh, right, right. In the brothel that Richard works at. And Richard actually saved his life. Oh, wow. Richard told the story on air and said on air that he wouldn't have made a big deal about it, but Dennis Hoff was all about publicity. And mm. it got thrust into the media spotlight because of Dennis. Oh, wow. So he made the choice of like, this is great advertising for my business that, that a celebrity almost died here. Yep. What did he, what did he OD on? Boner pills. Word? Like gas station boner pills and shit. What what are, what's in those? That's the problem. I right? don't really know. I don't know, man. He's got money. Go get, like, does Viagra not work? Like, go get Viagra. Well, you gotta get a prescription for that. Well, and that's true. You know, I, I took one once in college, and but the the problem was I did not take it right before having sex. I was literally at a party with a guy who was a pharma rep, and he's like, and I just have these like samples of like Viagra and stuff like that, and I was like, I'll take one. I just wanted to see what happened. I'll tell you what happened. I got a boner. I was at a party. It sucked. Like, I was like, no, I'm, I'm sitting here for like 30 minutes. Had to tuck it into your waistband? Basically, yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't, I mean, I was 22. I didn't need a Viagra, you know? Like, it was, it was uh, it's like, and you don't want that at a party. It wasn't that kind of party, for sure. And uh, it was like, oh, well, I can tell you that they work. That's all I can tell you. Oh, well, then I've heard nothing but good things. I have never personally done them. 
I'm not a sex performer, so I don't feel the need for him. <laughs> well, no, exactly. You're just, I'm good. I'm fine with this. He overdosed, huh? Like, he just, yep. one was not enough, huh? Uh, he was partying, like, they had his Amex Black on file. That's trouble. There, do you remember the story, like, from, I don't know, this was a while ago. There was a, a guy who was an executive in St. Louis, where I used to live, which is why I know this story. But he flew out to, um, is it Scores in New York City? Yeah. Um, and had a corporate credit card that they ran up a quarter million dollar bill on. I remember that story. Yeah. Well, I just read, like I said, it was a, I was in St. Louis when it happened. So it was big news and you just go, Oh man, I just wanted to be there. Like when he realized what he'd done, you know, like that's the scene I want to watch. I want to see like, was it like my, my guess is that they gave him a bill. He signed it without looking at it. And then like the next day, like woke up and like had like the, the carbon, you know, and went like, Oh no! Either I got a really angry call from the accounting department, like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! I, I wonder how the, did they get to keep that money? Like, I don't remember the outcome on it. But seriously, could you imagine being that accountant who's getting the call from the credit card company, like, "Hey, so we just got this charge because they have to call you on something like that, right?" You would think, but that's the whole thing about like a black card is like you can buy a Ferrari on a black card, you know? Um. I don't know, but but like, or, or at what point in the night did he say fuck it, or did they drug him? I don't know. Like, they definitely didn't drug him. So okay. he had a private bungalow at the brothel. Okay, and just slapped down the black card, and they found him unresponsive back there. So allegedly, it was dick pills. I oh wait, wait, you're back to, to oh uh, oh yeah, the guy that scores. Sorry, yeah, yeah, the guy that scores. Uh, who knows? Yeah, no, I just again like at some point you go uh, okay. Here's another thing is I'm sure that they would have been okay if he had ran up $5,000 at scores because like that's right. I mean, you, I heard you say that you worked at strip clubs for a long time, right? So like business meetings take place all the time at strip clubs. They do. And, um, so obviously you can run up five grand at scores if you're really closing a big client. But like, so at some point though, he had to either go, fuck it, I don't care anymore. Or he had to pass some level of drunk where when they said $11,000, he's just like, I don't know what that means in my head, but I'm just going to nod my head. Or they, he just slapped his card down and then decided to party with the girl in the back until, you know, an average rate of 20 to $30 a song. Sure. It's still going to take you a long time to get to quarter mil on that. Well, if you're doing full-on bottle service with it. Oh, that's true. Right. So you figure a bottle of champagne, a cheap bottle of champagne in a strip club's four or $500. Wow. And I'm sure this guy, if he can afford to have that even charged to his card, is like, give me your most expensive bottle of champagne. Sure, sure. So you're probably looking at thousands of dollars per bottle. Gotcha. So that's where it starts. Right. And I don't know how many people were with him. So he'd been like, he could have been like, Oprah with dances. You get a dance. You get a right, dance. Right, right. You get a dance. Everybody gets a dance. <laughs> I guess so. I guess you could really rack it up. I, I, I read a quote one time, not from a strip club operator, but just from a nightclub operator, which makes it more interesting what he's going to say here is like, he's like, my job is to sell somebody a bottle of champagne for the amount of money that they could get a bottle of champagne, a limo, two call, call girls and a gram of Coke. And, and I'm like, when he said it like that, I just went, oh, yeah, that's a hard job. Not really. No, it's not though, right? <laughs> I mean, for fuck's sake, I worked uh, security at a club here in town that has a very famous... It's like a go-go night. It's a hip-hop go-go night. Okay. I'm not going to name the clubber. If you live in town, you probably know what night I'm talking about. I don't, but I'm lame, so that's all right. And dudes would bring in literally 10 grand stacks in cash with them to throw at these girls. Wow. And I'm just like, 
the fuck do you do for a living? That you're just like, I'm going to throw 10 grand at a girl who's dancing on stage. <laughs> yeah. And not pick it up afterwards. Right. <laughs> like you're not allowed to. Just kidding, lady. Right. Just be like, ah, make it hit rain. Well, I, if there's anything you learn about a life in Los Angeles, it's like whatever you do in life, try and do it for rich people because there is no ceiling in this town. There's no ceiling for people tipping strippers. There's no ceiling for what you could charge for a fucking sandwich in this town. I know, it sucks for the rest of us. Oh, I, yeah, for sure. I, there's a lot of ways I think um, L.A. is the best food city in America. And, and for, to be broke, I think this is the best food city in America. But also, there's just like, you go to these neighborhood places and you go, you want me to pay $18 for a sandwich? You're going to give me a bag of chips with it? Like, what the fuck is that? Yeah, that, it's like, what the fuck? And it's not even a great sandwich for $18. No, no, and for $18, I'm on a... F- That's what drives me crazy about L.A. is because I do think that, like there is some of the best food in the world here and it tends to be the cheaper food made by Asian or Mexican people. So like I know places where you can get a bomb me for four bucks and it's better than that $18 sandwich. I promise you. There is a place just down the street on Hollywood Boulevard where you can get a amazing bowl of pho for like six bucks. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, or you're, in, you're, you're almost within walking distance of Thai town here, you know, you, so you go down there and you can just, yeah, $5 for a plate of noodles, best, Better than any of these. L.A. sucks for fancy food and, and rocks for cheap food. That's my basic pocket. I agree. I wholly agree. But, oh, jeez, sometimes the fancy food is like, are you kidding? There's, I know there's a cafe in West Hollywood where it's like, I got a coffee, French toast, bacon and eggs, and my tab came out to like 30 bucks for me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, there are places, particularly in Hollywood, like around like Chateau Marmont is an example of this, where... It's expensive not because it's good. It's only expensive to keep non-rich people out. Like, the Chateau Marmont, I've heard. I've never been inside the rooms. Like, I hear the rooms are fine. They're nice. But, like, that place starts at 900 bucks a night. So you're not buying, like, luxury. You're just buying no riffraff. You're buying the name, too. Yeah, well, yeah. But it's just, like, I don't know if you ever heard of the Chinese restaurant Mr. Chow's in Beverly Hills. I've heard of it. I've never been there either. um, But I've heard of it. And the thing about them is that they charge, like, 30 bucks for a plate of like 1980s mall style hot or whatever sweet and sour chicken they're probably just going to panda express picking it up and right <laughs> and, and i think they're very you know i think again it's that thing of like oh we're just doing this so celebrities can eat here and not have any yokels around well and be seen there yeah and be seen and be i am somebody who can afford to what, eat at mr Charles. and i that's what that's what that guy is buying when he throws the ten thousand dollars at the stripper he's not buying ten thousand dollars worth of boob in the face because no amount of boob is worth ten thousand dollars i i think um but like that's what you're saying is like i can afford this is just i'm throwing it she can pick it up if she wants it i'm not even gonna tuck it into her (laughs) into her waistband you know i hope i never get that rich oh god no no man you know they did they do studies where they say like there's an amount of money that makes your life better and like they like in I don't think this would work for L.A., but like in the middle of the country, it's like 70 grand a year. If you make 70 grand a year and you live in Springfield, Missouri, that's money makes your life better. You get a, a nice home, not too nice, but a nice home that doesn't suck. You can afford when you need a new couch, get a new couch. And you're, if you get sick, you can go to a doctor. And above that line, money doesn't make you happier. And they've proven it, you know. Oh, I, I know firsthand. Before I moved to L.A., I was a full-time road warrior making, I mean, not insane money, but I was making almost six figures, but I had no expenses. I lived out of hotels on the company dime. Oh, nice, nice. I had a $60 a day company per diem. So like I didn't pay for food. Literally my only expenses a month were my cell phone bill and my storage unit. 
Wow. And I traveled like a madman. And I eventually had to get off the road because it was fucking isolating. Because if you don't have peers in a social group to do that shit with, cool. I can afford to fly to Australia on a whim. I did. I had a great time in Australia. You know what would have been more fun? Spending it with a bunch of friends. Yeah, for real. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, you know, I did, like I said, I worked on, on The Mentalist for six years, which was like a, a very successful network TV show. So I, there was a period of time where I made a lot of money. And like I said, like I went from being pretty broke to, to making money. And that part was awesome. And then I went from making pretty good money to making very good money. So what? Like, you know, like I, I did get to go to a lot of UFC shows. That was like the one thing that I did spend like a stupid amount of money on that I would spend a stupid amount of money on again if I have another network job. But, you know, so what, you start buying jeans. You know, talk about something that doesn't have a ceiling. Jeans, man. You, you buy a pair of jeans for 20 bucks. You buy a pair of jeans for 200 bucks. You can buy a pair of jeans for 600 bucks. Like there's no ceiling. And after a while, jeans only get so good. I mean, that's the fact of the matter. There's no, you know... $200 pair of jeans is you're not getting so it's hand stitched like does that mean anything hell that might be worse there's human error in hand stitching that's true too that's <laughs> true too and I never got to like the 600 jeans thing because I did maintain some of my humanity but like no I, I, I have been to a place where I made more money than I needed and you do you either I think get a disease where you find a hole in yourself that you think you can fill if you just get a little more money or you go oh, I don't need this much money. I should not do this for a living and I should try and <laughs> make a living doing something similar with less money and more freedom or whatever it is that you want. That's exactly why I got off the road. Yeah, no, exactly. Like, we live in a, a workaholic culture and even more so LA is a workaholic culture that I think is really sick in a lot of ways. Unfortunately, the housing market kind of demands that you have to be. Well, that part is insane. And the only thing that made, made it better for me is I moved here from New York. And New York is the one way to make L.A. feel cheap is to, you know, like you come here from there and you go, God, the apartments are huge and so affordable. <laughs> um, if I had moved here directly from like St. Louis, I would have had a very different reaction. But like L.A. is getting there, but it's not there yet. New York, it's literally insane to live there. Like there is no way to justify it if you're not like almost literally a billionaire. But certainly you want to be a millionaire to live like a normal life, like a normal person would recognize as pleasurable at all. Um, and there's just, do you know that old? 50s girl group song called uh, uh, He Hit Me and It Felt Like a Kiss. Yeah. Yeah, that's what New Yorkers are. It's New the York Ronettes, right? No, it's not the Ronettes. It was written by, um, not Carol, Carol Kane. Not Carol Kane. Carol. Anyway, it's, it's from that era. It's not the Ronettes. I think it was a, kind of a one-off girl um, who recorded it. But it's, yeah, it's this whole, like, I, I know he loves me because he hits me. The Crystals. The Crystals. There you go. Got it on my phone. Nice. Um, but that's what, that's what New Yorkers sound like to me when they talk. It's like, oh yeah, no, this place is so amazing because I step in bum water every time I walk outside and look, there's a pile of dung and it smells bad. And oh, by the way, rent's $5,000 a month. And I share a bathroom with my neighbors. I share a bathroom with my neighbors and the, there are billionaires moving in across the street. So the landlord's raising rent and the subways are shutting down and oh wait, now it's winter for nine months. Congratulations. And the snow turns black. Um, like I, said, I lived there for like three years and then I had this moment where I broke and it was like the, the biggest split second change in my personality I've ever had in my life. I was, um, I was doing some music writing and some movie writing for the village voice chain, but I also had a night job cause that other shit didn't pay shit. And, uh, so I, I just got out my night job. It was like midnight. It was January. I got on a subway station platform 
And I don't know if you know New York well, but there's this thing you learn in New York where if a subway car pulls up and half of it is very full and the other half is empty, there's a really good reason why that half of the subway car is empty. But unfortunately, that's where I was standing when the doors opened was on the empty side. So I got in and instantly, you know, there's that kind of homelessness that you don't so much smell it as taste it. And you become very aware that smelling means that the actual particles of piss and shit are in your body because that's how you smell is like the things are in your body now. And there was that guy was on the bench and, and I was trying not to stare at him. So I tried to walk around him to the crowded side of the train that didn't smell like his piss and shit. And so I, I stepped in his vomit and then I rode back to Brooklyn and then I was coming out of the subway and the wind was coming down the staircase in that way that it does in January in New York, where it's just like fucking knives are coming at you. And I thought the gross part of my night was done, but I kind of, as I walked up the steps in, in Brooklyn Heights, the, the wall facing the steps was just like fucking shotgunned with a Jackson Pollock of fucking diarrhea. And I just, I came out and I was freezing and I was already had bum puke on my shoes and I saw that and I literally, like something in me broke like a twig, just snapped and just like, I don't have to fucking live here anymore. Like, I don't fucking have to live here anymore. And I marched in uh, to my, my now ex-wife, but not because of this. And I, I came in and I said, I'm leaving. You can come with me or you can not come with me, but I'm like leaving. That part's not up for debate. Like, fuck this fucking city. Um, and it's, uh, there's so much, it's a great place to visit. The cliche is true. Oh no, I love visiting there. Love visiting there. Could I, never live there. It, well, it, New York lies to you when you visit it because you stay in some part of town. Like I always stay on the Lower East Side because I like the restaurants around there. But like, you can't like fucking afford, I can't afford to live on the Lower East Side, you know? But I can afford to visit there and I take cabs everywhere when I'm in New York City because I, you know, you're there for two days. Take a fucking cab. What do you care? And you eat in good, it's not that thing where, like I used to say, I had, there was a $50 tax to leave your house in New York City. Because if you walked out your front door, you would find some way to spend $50 every single time. I feel that way about LA too. Yeah, I mean, it is like, it's not quite as bad because here at least, if you want to meet a friend, you can have a friend come over here and sit on your couch, you know. Um, there it's like, if you even want to meet a friend, you're going to a, a bar, um, you know. I did quit drinking while in New York and it was one of those things that like went like, Oh, yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, I mean, New York's a great place to get drunk. Oh, I know. Oh, I, I, <laughs> yeah. I know firsthand. Um, I, you know, I, when you think about everybody has that, that like a montage they can play in their heads of the times I almost died, pissing out of the back of a moving subway train while super drunk at four in the morning is when I hold on to of like, oh man, I was so close to being in the New York Post with like a fucking shitty headline about how dumb I was when I fucking, because it was between cars. I was between cars where you're not even supposed to go when you're not drunk and not pissing. And I'm like standing there with my dick out, like while the train's like taking curves and stuff and how I didn't like fucking tumble and get cut in half is beyond me. Or piss on the third rail. Or piss on the, I, you know, thank you. I didn't even have that part in my equation of my near death, but now I do. God damn it. Because that would make a headline, just electrocuted to death because the current went up your fucking urine. Sure, but the New York Post would have some kind of rhyming pun about it. I don't know what that is. Like whiz kid or something <laughs> like that, you know? Um, <laughs> yellow means stop, something. I don't, I don't have it in my head, but like something, yeah. Um, well, thankfully it never happened. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. No, because it's the thing about it, as opposed to like the Midwest where I would, unfortunately I would drink and drive, which I'm not proud of, but it was a long time ago. But in New York, there's not even that cap of like, well, I kind of need to stay sober enough to drive with one eye open. You know, I just, there's no, and bars don't close. I always lived in places with last call until I lived in New York. And it's just like, oh no, lids off, man. You drink until you don't want to drink anymore. Oh, I know. Oh, I know. <laughs> Chicago's like that, too. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Chicago has 4 a.m. last call. Yeah, that's... And if, you know, 
you're in the industry or in the scene, you know where the after hour spots are. Right, right, right. Well, I did. You, I don't know if you spent much time in St. Louis, but in St. Louis, the the last call was like one thirty. But then you would go across the river to the east side, like Sage. Sage is like a famous strip club uh, belt out there where it was just, it's one of those like no rules, wild west kind of places where it's like, it's no, there's no rules about what they can wear or not wear. There's no rules about touching. And a lot of guys, I'm sure would go out there anyway, but there's a lot of times there would be that caravan of people making really bad decisions at one thirty of like, no, let's keep going. You know, <laughs> that just, that was n- never a good idea. Although sometimes it was a good idea. Eh. Bad decisions sometimes equal good stories. That's true. I, I have a lot less stories about my life nowadays, unless, <laughs> unless you want to hear about me rewatching the Jersey Shore. That's about as close as I get to exciting in the, these days. Wow, Jim Tan Laundry. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I, like, I, there is something about the current climate that just makes me want to ingest bad garbage. Just like, give me the fucking Jersey Shore. Just give me Snooky in the situation doing dumb shit. And I don't, just for a while. That's why I think, you know, I think a lot of these shows that are very popular that we're talking about, that they're very grim. They were all greenlit when everybody thought Hillary Clinton was going to be president. And like, now everything is grim on TV and in the real world. I really think people are going to be like, no, fuck it. Put fucking Dukes of Hazard back on the air. Give Adam Sandler like movies in the theater again. Yeah, yeah. Let's turn it around, people. Let's like, let's get happy again. I don't know. Like, because... It is just like, I mean, like The Handmaid's Tale. I don't know if you watched that. I didn't. Well, it's really fucking depressing. And again, I think it was greenlit and somebody somebody was like, well, we'll show people what could have been. As opposed to now it feels like what is going to be. And it's just, I don't know, man. I'm not sure I want to watch women be like abused and raped for an hour every night. I think I'm just going to watch the situation get drunk and fall down. I don't know. (laughs) No, I, I totally get that. I totally get that. <laughs> I still think there's plenty of space for compelling crime stories, though. Well, God knows I'm trying, you know. I, I you know, I, I just went out and pitched a new TV show. I do have, a, like I said, my, my novel, by the way, if I may brag for one second. Please. If, any, if anybody's made it past all this to, to get to, like, my, my, my promo of my book, I, did, I just found out I got nominated for an Edgar Award for Best New Novel, which... So for my audience that may not know what an Edgar and is. And Edgar is um, the mystery, kind of the biggest crime fiction awards that are out there. They're done by the Mystery Writers of America. And so it is like, it is one of those things where like to be nominated is, is, is good enough. I don't know if I'll win or not, but like it's been fairly well received. And, um, and I'm trying to, I'm getting LA Confidential on the air. I'm trying to write a new book, which is really hard. But I also have this story that I tried to turn into a TV show. Um, but I, I can't get any tankers. I think I'm going to try it as a comic book which is a new way of like kind of end running around everybody else. I honestly feel I've talked about this before. Comic books are one of the last great mediums. Well, it's one of the last mediums that you can bootstrap. Yeah. And it's still kind of the wild west in some respects. Yeah. Just do what you want. Well, yeah. And I, you know, I'm, I'm in a place where I'm totally willing to like find an, a real artist and pay them out of my pocket, not go to them and say, come on, man, like do it for free. Like, it's like, no, you have a job. I have a job. Let me pay you and, and do this. But I, I want to do like a Tarantino. Basically I would say it's like, this is very Hollywood speak. So forgive me, but like game of Thrones, uh, style LA crime war done in like a Tarantino esque fun tone. Because to me, like all the crime fiction that's on the air right now is super grim and grimy. And I grew up in the 90s thinking like, you know, the crime, it was okay to just like the bad guy. And, and I don't need them to like, you know, I don't need it to be grim. I just want to have fun. I want to watch people kill each other. And, and like... Well, in the 90s, I feel like your bad guys were just cooler. Yeah. And, and it was okay. And you didn't have to like 
again, make them everybody miserable. And you can just say, I have this, this is a canned line that I'm giving you here, but I always say like people read Superman comic books to feel like what it's like to fly for a little while, but people read or watch crime fiction to feel what it's like to live above the law for a while. And it's a different kind of flying and it's something fucking fun because we all live in these invisible cages all the time and you just want out. You want to go, well, what if I was the kind of guy who like when somebody badmouthed me, I killed them. And that's fun, you know? And so, uh, yeah. Heat is one of my favorite movies. Oh, dude. I mean, if you want to stop the podcast, restart it, and we just talk for two and a half hours about heat, I could do that. <laughs> I, have you ever been to the internet movie gun database? I have not. It, the only page on it worth going to is the heat page. Because what the internet movie gun database does is it, it catalogs every gun that shows up in a movie. And what you find out when you read the Heat Internet Gun movie database is that the guys who fucking made Heat, like Michael Mann and whoever he hired, are fucking gun nerds. And like you find out why everybody's gun makes sense for them. And you find out that like, oh, they're saying that Robert De Niro's character was in the Marines because his his sidearm is a Marine sidearm that he has like modified. Yeah, he carries a 1911 in it, doesn't he? Oh, you see, I'm not that level. Like I'm not hip to it. I just read it and went like, holy shit. And there's so much about Heat. Like, I mean, they talk about it on this page that like, Val Kilmer is so good at reloading that rifle on the go that they show it in army training videos. Like, um, you know, in that big gunfight out on the street. Yeah, where he's just like... Drops and goes. Yeah. And um, I I fucking... I try to... I want to turn that into a TV show, too. After after I'm done with LA Confidential, I have, like, the kind of swinging dick, I hope, that lets me be able to say things. Like, now I want to do Heat as a TV show. So what would you do? Like, make it about Neil McCauley before he went to prison, or...? Um, You know, I think there's probably, yeah. I mean, it does get tough in that, like, there is a reason why Heat is a movie and not a TV show, is it's the relationship between those two cops. But I also think... The thing about Heat is, I think there's a version of Heat that was an hour shorter that might actually be pretty good. And there's a version of Heat that is 12 hours long that I would love to watch. And what I think I would want to do is do one whole season that was basically Heat if you chased down every single character and told all of their stories. Like, Wangro is a fascinating character. The, yeah. fact, the fact that he's a serial killer does not really get a whole lot of play in that movie. No, it's just kind of like, eh, it's a thing. Yeah, but like I love, like this is something I've written about and like it's in my book is I love like Wayne Grove goes to a, a bar that is clearly like a criminal bar and he sits down and he says, like, I'm a cowboy, anything heavy. And like, and the guy behind the bar is like, where'd you serve time? You know, like, and it's yeah. just like, what's that bar? I want to hang out in that bar. I want to do an hour in just in that bar. And like, Hell, that bar could be a central character in your TV show. That's what I'm saying. You could definitely do a show where every episode takes place in that bar, and it's a different character every week. Right. Oh, that's a good idea, too. Like, there's so many avenues of heat that you could go down. Like you said, like their entire, this is the end of a long career for all of these people. And and you could do all of all of their lives. You could do every, like, um, oh, God, who's the, um, John Voight. John yeah. Voight. John Voight's character is fascinating. Who is he? Yeah, like, who's Nate? Where did he come from? Yeah, exactly. How did how did this fence get all these connections? And right, yeah, exactly. They got the big phone, and the, there's the guy who's like crippled, but gives him the bank plan. And like, who is that guy? There are so many characters in Heat that are so seem so well developed for the five seconds you see them on screen that you could just you. I feel like you could elongate it so much. Michael Chirito, um is so um, he's the famous the third guy in the crew. The, the famous actor. Um, if it's not Val Kilmer and it's not uh, Robert De Niro, then it is Tom Sizemore. Yeah, Sizemore. Sorry, yeah. it took me a second to get there. I, was, I thought you were saying the actor's name. I'm like, but uh, no, no. He, um, yeah, yeah, Michael Cerrito. Yeah, slick. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Thank you. Um, he's a fascinating character. Like, he's the one who served time, but they still like let him into the gang. Like, 
I, I like I've, I'm I'm a crime nerd, like a real crime nerd, and I've always I mean I'll read a little bit about serial killers, but I, my real interest is in professional criminals, and I always have this bad joke that um, if my girlfriend slipped and died in the shower, and the cops came in and saw my bookshelf, they would just arrest me, you know, like they would go I don't know how he killed her, but he killed her. Have you seen this motherfucker's bookshelf? I have books on how to cook meth. I have books on on dog fighting and how to train fighting dogs because that's something I think is really fucked up, but also really fascinating. I have I have a forensic book on how to tell the difference between somebody who hung themselves committing suicide and how they hung them if they accidentally hung themselves while jerking off. Like there's an entire book dedicated to that with really weird pictures in it. Like, Are they of David Carradine? Well, it was made post Carradine, but you know the thing about Carradine was you actually had a witness, which is why they were so. Here's a, here's a, this is a weird rule of thumb. But here's the rule of thumb: if you're a detective and you see somebody who maybe they died jerking off and maybe they died because they wanted to die, if there is any reason to think they were suicidal, you just say it was suicide because that's considered less embarrassing for the family than somebody who died trying to jerk off. But if they're dicks in their hands, you know. But even then, like, you still, like, there's a checklist. And it's like, if they don't fit any of these, like, if there's any way it could have been a suicide, call it a suicide. But yeah, typically dick in hand. But, but pants down is not. And, like, because maybe the pants fell down. Maybe they, you know. Right. I, um, but yeah, if they have, like, porn open and, and like, lube out and things like that, you, you know. Like, yeah, maybe. Boy, that's a, you know, again, like. I, I get people want to come really hard. Like, that's totally like a thing I totally understand. But, like, not where I'm going to die. Well, I've read some articles where there's conspiracy and thought that Carradine was murdered by a ladyboy and just made to look like he had auto-affixated himself. Oh, that's I have a short story that's kind of like that. I have a story where a guy, like, kills a guy and then says, he, he frames them as having hung himself jerking off because he goes, they'll never, they won't press hard on this. Well, and it happened in Thailand, so, which is notoriously bad about that kind of shit like following up on they have fucking murder island what's i was just in thailand i did not hear about murder so island. there's let me see if i can pull up the article real quick there is an island where there's just been a bunch of mysterious tourist deaths huh like let me see if i can pull this I, up i did not know about that apparently i missed tur- uh, murder island while i was there yeah, I start, to, I start to type in Murder Island in Google, and it completes it with Murder Island, Thailand. Oh, well, there you go. Hell, there's a wiki for it. Oh, well, of course there is. Of course there is. God, I love the internet. It's so fucked up, but I love it. There, there's a lot to it. Oh, we, I, we can get into it off air. I'm sure the right. audience doesn't particularly want to hear me read Wikipedia to them. <laughs> <laughs> Let's all do that at home, though. Let's all do our homework on Murder Island. But basically, a bunch of tourists have died under very suspicious circumstances, and the authorities have just been like, sounds like suicide to us. Well, I didn't know this. I was in Thailand when I, I decided to, to educate myself on Thailand enough to find out that it's a military dictatorship, which oh, yeah. you do not feel when you're on the streets of Thailand. It does not. There are not like armed guards on the street or anything, but like you go uh okay well i think i'll i mean i'm again like i'm sober and i was with my girlfriend i was i had a very legal trip to thailand you know we didn't go to a ladyboy show it was very good but um but it was just a show it was not now hang me um so i can't really comment on that on that part but like well no but there's been a couple of times where it's happened like they i've heard that about I've heard Michael Hutchinson from NXS was erotic asphyxiation, but I'm not sure about that. Um, it's a weird way. My point is, I'm just like, I'm, I'm, <laughs> that, there was a, a cul-de-sac in the conversation of just like being a crime nerd and being obsessed with like armed robbers and things like that, which um, 
So, so for the audience at home, I just pulled up an article with the headline, Lady Boys Killed David Carradine Over Sex. Well, that's just rude. Well, I mean, like, like he wasn't going to pay him or they were going to rob him or, or he got rude about it? Uh, according to this, a close friend claims that he was drugged and murdered. Uh, that he met two lady boys at the bar, desperate for money, and would have zeroed in on him. And his friend is convinced that the hookers drugged Carradine, hung him, and set him, set him out with stage to look to be, like, to be a suicide. I mean, I guess it's possible, but again, like I think there's like literally no other death you can conceive of. Like this could just be a friend trying desperately to believe that Derek, David, his friend didn't die jerking off. I know I read in another article, and this article may contain that information, that there was like a footprint on the bed that wasn't Carradine's. Oh, well, I, but I thought there was like a ladyboy present. I thought that wasn't up for dispute. I thought that like there was, he was having weird sex with somebody that was not properly like trained in, in doing this, and, and it just got out of hand. True, true. I, I don't know. Uh, I have to delve into it a little deeper, see if they found drugs in the system because his friend's claiming he was drugged. Well, sure, but again, you find drugs in the system. And, well, it depends on the drug. Well, it depends on the drug, but God, people will abuse anything in it anymore. They're fucking abusing Tide Pods. That's one of the things I know that I'm old. Is Have you heard about this Tide Pod thing? Oh, I'm angry about it. Tide announced in the last couple of days they were pulling Tide Pods from the shelf February 1st. Because, I, to, why do people eat them? Because they want to th- thin the herd for us? I, I guess, but like, I get that they're like brightly colored, but like they can't taste good why are you i don't get it i i also i i'm not totally convinced that this isn't a huge prank but i don't know well it may have started as a huge prank and then other idiots emulated it idiots ruin it for everybody did you hear about the couple where the pregnant girlfriend murdered her baby's daddy shooting him in the heart with a desert eagle through a bible because they were convinced the bible would stop it I did, yeah for a youtube right yep for a youtube yeah i did hear about that and you just go i don't know guys did you did did you don't do that yeah don't do that well i guess they tested it and it worked the slight problem is even if it previously stopped a bullet bullets are weird like that well bullets are weird like that physics is weird like that I mean, it was something about like a bullet, a book standing alone would fly backwards, and that's why it didn't penetrate. It didn't penetrate, but when he was backstopping it, it didn't fly backwards, and so the bullet went through it. Right, and it's just a bad plan, anyways, because unless you're a decent marksman, you may not hit the book. Well, I didn't even think about that part. <laughs> I remember, like back in the day, before Jackass was Jackass, there were these things uh, called Big Brother, was a skateboard magazine, yep. and they did those where they just called bullshit, and th- that's the first time I ever saw Johnny Knoxville. And Johnny Knoxville, in that, shot himself in the chest with a twenty-two wearing a bulletproof vest. And, I mean, it was just something they would never have done on Jackass, because by then they had, like, sane adults, like, going, no, you could cripple yourself, but you can't kill yourself. But I remember watching it, because the guy holding the camera was, like, going, I fucking hate this. Like, what, what are we doing? Like, I don't think we should be doing this. And that guy, by the way, was 100% correct. Johnny Knoxville should not have done that. <laughs> 100%, especially because Kevlar has problems st- stopping 22s. Well, that's, like, you know... Yeah, well, I'm sure it does, but also, like, you don't... How could you ever trust anybody well enough to go, this is a well-made bulletproof vest. I know for a fact this wasn't made by a guy when he was hungover. Like, you don't know that. It's why I won't skydive. I've done it once. I love it. Yeah? I just don't trust human beings that much. It's, I have a problem flying, too, you know? Like, 
I mean, which I, I know the odds. I know everybody. Like, I know literally nobody died last year flying. It's just like, I don't know, man. I don't know these guys. I don't know what that fucking pilot got into a fight with his wife last night. You just don't. Well, the way I look at it with flying is, I'm fairly sure he wants to live, too. Uh, yeah. You know the thing? that I try and get myself an aisle seat, and I try and sit near the front of the cabin. Because what I like to do, because I, I really freak out during takeoff. That's when I have, like, my panic about it. So what I do is I, I like to look at the flight attendant. Because the flight attendant always, I always think, like, first of all, now they hire old flight attendants. That's so... That's why I like flying Virgin Atlantic. They still hire hot young British girls. <laughs> I like the old ones because I like to look at them and go, this woman's been flying for 20 years. She's dead. I'm not on the one flight that she's on that goes, you know, she's not dead. And so I just like to watch them be totally bored during the takeoff because I go like, if something actually goes wrong, I will see it on their face. And until that moment, I don't need to worry. Oh, I do that too. It's like until the flight attendant has to take their seat, this turbulence ain't shit. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Or if they just take their seat and then just, like, look totally bored. It's like, okay, this is just regulations going on. But, so I'm going to pull something up for you that you're going to hate. Awesome. Statistically, the safest seat to sit in a plane to survive a crash is in the back. I've heard that. Yeah, I know. But, man, no, you know, come on. I'm just going to try and avoid the ones that crash. I, you know, to, to ask to be the odds of being in a plane that crashes and you're the one guy who survives because you sat in the back, that's pretty low odds. I mean, chances are side of the mountain's going to get everybody, right? I mean, or like, I try not to think about it because the one that still freaks me out is when you're like, when I flew to Thailand, you know, we flew from LA to Tokyo, which takes place mostly over the fucking ocean. And hey, if like one of the engines goes out and they're like, we're just going to land this in the ocean, they can probably do that. Then what? You're in the middle of the... F it took you eight hours to get there, man. Like, you're not going to stay alive for eight hours. Well, you figure the U.S. is probably going to send someone from Hawaii. Yeah, I'm just saying, man. I, you know, it's it, you're just... You're in, a, you're in a pickle. I think you'd agree that you're in a pickle. Yeah, thankfully there's a bar. You could take drinking back up there. Well, I absolutely would. I, that would be a good call. I'd be like, well, let's break this streak, you know? And then <laughs> let's see what happens next. But Speaking of, like, life-threatening things... uh. This will have been out. You know, this will have happened a couple of weeks ago by the time this is out. But that national alert that happened in Hawaii, that oh, the incoming yeah. missiles. What do you think you would have done in that situation? I. That's a really good. I don't think. Here's what I think is I don't think I would have done it that much. I think I would have found some place to sit. I don't think those things people say of like, well, I'm going to go find a girl and fuck her. Like, no, you're not. You're not going to go find a girl. And also, you know what? You're probably not going to get a boner because you're, you're about to die. Fear boner, man. Fear boner. I, that's not a thing. You sure? Well, I've been scared a lot. I don't think, you know, I can't think of too many fear boners that I've had. I don't know. The thing about like, the apocalypse that I think nowadays is when we were young, everybody thought the apocalypse was something that happened on one day and you knew it was happening. And now I think like, no, it's just like everything else. You know, one day the sun turns red and the next day all the birds die. But the day after all the birds die, you still have to go to work. Yeah. You know, and the apocalypse is going to happen really slow. And it could, I mean, I hate to be like this, but it could be happening right now. Cause like, you know, ask a fucking polar bear if the apocalypse is happening or not, you know? This is why I love Children of Men. Oh, yeah, great. Well, that's what I mean. Like, it, life goes on. Like, yeah, life continues to go on in that movie. It is honestly one of my favorite depictions of post-apocalyptic society. That 
oh my God, the world is coming to an end and people are still fighting over politics. Yeah, because that's what they're going to do because that's what we're doing. Like this, I love like the Mad Max movies, but like we're not all going to shave our heads and get blue mohawks and start tattooing ourselves and piercing our nipples and shit unless that's what you do already. We're all still going to be exactly the same and we're, we're just, it's just going to be like, we're, yeah, I don't know. We're not all going to be born again fucking savages like that ship is sailed. Maybe the kids will. You know, the kids will deal. I'm way past the age where I can become a born-again fucking savage, you know? That's a lot of cardio. It is. It's a lot of cardio. And um, I I have found that the older I get, the less I like cardio and the more I like food. And, um, yeah, I just... No, it's just going to happen real slow. It's like, I mean, the, the whole boiling frog analogy, you know that one, where you put a frog in a pot and you turn the temperature up one degree and it doesn't notice and then you boil it to death. Um, that, that's what the apocalypse is. That, I mean, unless we get very, very unlucky and a comet comes, it's just going to be something where it's just like, well, and even if a comet comes, it may be an extinction level event. We ain't all going to die instantly. No, no. It's, it's like, it's like the people who worship Cthulhu and the whole idea is you worship him because when he comes back, he'll kill you first. That's kind of your opinion or my opinion of like, if like the, the fucking comet comes, like, I hope the comet lands on me. Like, I don't want to be the guy who dies from because the sun's been choked out by dust. Like, that just sounds like a bummer. I don't know. Right? Or be enslaved by some stronger tribe who wants to use me as a sex dummy until I die. <laughs> exactly. But again, like, when, 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 the, when the dust chucks out the sun, you're not going to, like, go get, like, a boat and a, and a bottle of whiskey and ride out there and play your sax or whatever it is. No, no. The most baller response I did see to the Hawaiian thing was some guy responded with, yeah, everyone fled out of the restaurant. So I went back to the buffet and got another round because the line was over. I'm like, that's that's the way to be. Sure, sure. Like, because the missiles aren't going to protect you by run if you run outside. I mean, maybe if there's a missile shelter, maybe. But even then, like you know, it's either like if if like North Korea fired a nuke and it hit L.A., it probably wouldn't kill you right away because the actual blast radius is like a quarter mile a mile i'm not sure it's not as big as they make it look in the movies exactly and la is fucking huge so you know i don't know where they they would land and i the thing is is like there's a really good chance because there's no way that those guys have like razor sharp accuracy right no they're having problems getting them over japan right so, like, they're going to, the chances of it landing in the fucking high desert or in the ocean are probably higher than it actually hitting us. And even if it hits us, it's probably going to be, like, radiation that gets us not. Maybe it'll just wipe fucking, you know, Palmdale off the map. That'd be cool. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Who needs Palmdale? No, no shade to anyone listening in Palmdale. <laughs> Love you, Palmdale. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Like I said, I just, it, it, you never thought the apocalypse would come and then you'd still have to go make a lunch. But I do think that that's... Whatever apocalypse we may experience will be one where you still have to get up and fucking go to work until like the very end. And then all of a sudden you go, shit, why did I keep going to work? Like I knew this was the apocalypse. Right? Fuck. I still have to pay for electricity and fucking food. God damn it. Right. Like, look, yeah. How bad is is the apocalypse going to be before they stop charging you for shit? Hey, rich people still want to live in comfort, even if it's still the bitter end. That's the whole thing that's fascinating, too, is this idea that, like, Peter Thiel has that he's building, like, you know, Peter Thiel runs Tesla, right? No, 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 Uber, Uber. Who's Peter Thiel run? He's one of those billionaires. He's the one who's, like, drinks young people's blood and, like, is building, like, a compound to survive a nuclear strike. Like, he thinks anybody's going to respect billionaires in the the fucking post-apocalyptic future. No, because the rules are off at that point. Right. Once the rules are off, he's not, that's, he's not an Ubermensch. He thinks he is, but he's not. 
and he just happens to be somebody who's suited for the particular rules, a particular game he's playing. But that game is not humanity. It's just this one rule of like hyper late stage capitalism. And once that game's over and a new game starts, he's fucking dead. Yeah. Like when the valuables become canned food, not paper. And bullets. Yeah. Which he probably is not buying in nearly enough quantity as he should. Right. He's probably paying people who have, but you have nothing to pay them with anymore. That's the thing. That's the funniest part is he thinks that people are going to continue to work for him in the apocalypse when he's paying them what? No, they're going to, that's when Throg takes, you know, takes over and, or whatever you name like a. Right. It's like, oh, I built this super secure compound. Cool. We're just taking it from you now. Yeah. Thanks. You can either leave or we kill you because we're not like, we're not cannibals yet, you know? So your call, you can leave or we kill you, but like, or you can become, yeah, the sex puppet or, or, you know, in his case, probably just time to pick up a mop, sir. Like, Uh, that's bad plan to keep your enemy around that close while you're sleeping. I guess, but you know, again, if you're like Throg the destroyer, you know, I know, I know he could sneak up with an, I don't think he's got it in him though. You know, Desperate times, man. I guess so, but I, I think that's bad villainy. You no, know, no, no. I hear what you're saying. You're right. It, it should be leave or, or or we kill you, or just we kill you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah. why give you the opportunity to warn other people that we took your compound? Yeah, you're better at this than they. See, there you go. You 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 might have thought this through a little more than I. But I plan on being somebody who dies in the first wave. Like I just made them up. My 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 knees are going. You know, I am not going to make it in, in the new world order. I'm probably not. I, I feel I just need to hone a really good strategy and then pitch that strategy to other people. I hear. Also, you know, like I love jujitsu. Jujitsu is not a martial art for the apocalypse, you know, because I mean, they even in jujitsu schools, they will tell you if you get into a street fight, try not to go to the ground. It's like we're only on the ground, you know, but they're like, yeah, but if this guy's got a friend, you do not want to be on the ground. You're going to get kicked in the head. Exactly. And, and the jujitsu school I went to was very open about that. It's like, you know, this is for like, this is for sport. There's a lot of situations you can get out of. Don't fucking pull guard in a fight. Like uh, you don't want to be, you don't want to pull ground on concrete. There are all sorts of rules that we obey that in a real fight you're not used to not obeying. Oh yeah, if someone tried to give me a rear naked choke in real life, I put my thumb in their eye. Yeah, no, exactly, (laughs) exactly. And you know, I'm sure that like, um, oh, who's the really tough Gracie? Not Hoist, but uh, not Henzo, but um. Uh, the really, the really badass guy, the one who was like actually not Hoyler. Uh, yeah, we've named all the other Gracie brothers. <laughs> um, oh my god! But anyway, he, you, you know, you couldn't get your thumb in his eye, right? Like he, he knows that trick, right? Because those guys would actually go out on the beaches of, of Rio and fight people who were trying to do literally anything and, and would still be able to do their moves. But I'm not. You know, every time I put somebody in a rear naked choke, they were either letting me because it was practice or I got really lucky and they're not trying to put their thumb in my eye. You know, right. like I am in no way, shape or form ready. And to you work. very well made, you know, choke me unconscious, but you're going to be wearing an eye patch in the apocalypse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, no. And, and that's true for a, a lot, you know. Yeah, but again, like what, how good is boxing in the apocalypse? Look, get weapons. Like that's the only. Oh, yeah. Know. Get weapons. And real street fighting? Learn small learn small joint manipulation. Yeah, yeah, break some fingers and oh, wrist no, locks. Yeah, no. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, again, when I took jiu-jitsu in the self-defense course, it was all, yeah, that one wrist lock where you press it against your body, against the elbow like that, and it's like, nobody can take that. Like, nobody, you yeah. know? There's no muscle there that... No, and, and, and there's nobody who can withstand that kind of pain. Like, not really. I mean, and, and if they can, well, hey, have fun getting your ass kicked by that guy because, like, he's well, going to, you know. Well, at that point, that's when you break it unless you're going to put him down an arm. Yeah, 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 for sure. But again, like, you know, 
that's where it all kind of falls apart of like, or get a knife, in which case, like, fuck that. Like, you know, like, I don't want anything to do with, with that. Or, but I, don't, I also don't want to be a guy who trains knife fighting because I think that's kind of goofy. As, as the old saying goes, you know, when you get in a knife fight, the, the winner bleeds, the loser gushes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. No, I, I have a book. Again, I have this really weird book collection. I have one called uh, San Quentin Knife Fighting Techniques. And, and, and it just goes like, oh, yeah, don't, um, don't get in a knife fight. Like, that's like the first chapter is like, don't get in a knife fight. If you get in a knife fight, you will get cut. Here's the best things you can do. But like, don't, don't do it. Like, ever, ever. I almost would rather be shot than stabbed. I, yeah, I've had people who are like serious martial artists tell me that. Like, I would rather, I would rather face a guy with a gun than a knife. Because there's a chance you can get a guy with a gun without getting shot. But like, if you attack somebody who has a knife, you will get cut. 100%. And the problem is, bullets generally make nice holes that medical facilities are fairly decent patching up these days yeah knives make horrible jagged cuts that are not easy to patch up oh yeah well one thing that's interesting about knife fighting in like the prison context is a lot of uh, homemade knives don't have edges in which case it really is actually very hard to kill somebody with just a point like you can stab you hear about all the time someone gets stabbed like 90 times and lives particularly if they have any kind of access to medical care because the thing that kills you then is, is septic shock when your guts bleed into your body you know when you dump guts into into your system but if you like you have a even a prison hospital is going to save your life in that case other than that killing somebody with just a point you have to like nick an artery and you can't plan that nobody's that good where it's just like and then i jammed them in the femoral artery right i most of those i this may be hearsay they'll try to get you in like the kidney or the liver they'll try to get you in the lower back where yeah yeah, yeah. you're more it's more likely to kill someone with a poke than right but even then like You'll probably survive. You'll probably survive. Like, again, if you have access to any kind of medical care whatsoever. And and people who get stabbed in the kidney or the livers, they keep fighting. I mean, that's the other, like, big lie that, like, movies and stuff tell you is that, is that people just stop fighting, which right. is not usually, like, even if you shoot somebody, you see it all the time in, like, real life if you watch those kind of videos, which I do, and I bet you do, too. You shoot somebody, they don't notice a lot of times. Right. Well, I... I come from an armed security background. Oh, like, right, right. So, you know, we were taught to shoot center mass and shoot to end the threat. Right. And the reason you shoot center mass, you don't shoot people in the head in real life, is it is a much larger target. Yeah. And there are so many things right here that if you hit them, people stop moving. Right. But you are still shooting at someone with something that is about the size of an eraser tip or a little bit larger and is just going to expand a little bit more. Right. So you're only going to disrupt that much of the system with one bullet. Right. Oh, yeah. Well, that's it. That whole thing is like when you... I, I, I am very anti-cop for a guy who is trying to write a cop show. Um, but one thing I, I have sympathy... I think they shoot too many people. But one thing you hear people say that's just stupid is like, well, why don't they just shoot him in the leg? It's like, if you're shooting somebody, you're shooting to kill. Like, that's the rule. 100%. Uh, I had a situation about a month ago where... I literally thought I was going to have to shoot somebody. Oh, yeah? And I told Robert Dean about it, actually. I was uh -huh. like, what, were you going to shoot him in the leg? I'm like, no, I was not. He's like, what? I'm like, no, if that gun had actually come out, because I had to go put it in my waistband while I was dealing with somebody. Wow. And I'm like, if it had gone in my hand, there would have been a verbal warning and then a discharge. Right. And there would have been probably multiple shots. Right. No, because that, that's, that's the thing that I think people want there to be some gray area, but there isn't. It, it is you're either not trying to kill someone or you're trying to kill them. There is no space with a gun in between that. Right. And that's why 
when I pulled the gun, I put it in my waistband under my shirt because I wasn't trying to escalate the situation. I was just concerned that I was going to have to use it. Now, you're being very coy about this. Are you being coy on purpose? Yes. Okay. Just just checking because if you weren't, I wanted to hear it. But that's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll happily tell you off air. Cool. On air, it's not very... Fair, fair enough. It's uh, Guys, it's a really cool story. I'll tell you that. <laughs> but yeah, I was very concerned that I was dealing with someone who was drunk and violent. Mm-hmm. And that I de-escalated the situation for the moment. But that they were so drunk that they may get violent again on a moment's notice. Right. And I'm not about to fist fight someone when I don't have to. Sure. So honestly, someone who's larger than me that could very well do me grave bodily harm. For sure. Yeah. Thankfully, I got them out of where we were with no additional incident. I didn't have to draw a weapon or shoot anyone. But other people I've told the two, like, what are you going to just you know, be like, yo, fuck yo. That's not how I work. That's not how it works in real life. Right. No, we, we've all been spoiled by movies, which is how we all absorb gun culture for the most part. Even those of us, like, I was raised a little bit with guns, and my grandfather uh, was, was a big gun guy. But, like, so much of your gun, it's John Woo shit, where it's just, like, they shoot, like, 90 bullets at each other, and it's all, I love John Woo movies. But, like, um, you know, yeah, there's, nothing's real. Just, like, how fights on, on TV are terrible. And, and I, when I pitch, like, LA Confidential, I always say I want the fights to look like um, World Star videos. I don't want them to look like, I never want to hear the word fight choreography. You have to choreograph them still, but I never want it to look, I hate fight choreography. Unless it's beautiful martial arts shit, but, like. Right, but that's. That's different. That's a martial arts movie in most cases. Right. But like to me, like like Deadwood was a show that did great fights because they would either just be one sided ass kickings, or there's that great fight in season three where the two really big guys fight each other, and by sixty seconds into it, they're both on their knees because they're so tired they can't stand because they're both completely gassed. And you're like, that's a fight, definitely. And I feel like in the modern era, because mixed martial arts is so big, people watch professional fighters beat the shit out of each other and don't go down to one punch knockouts. Right. So. Portraying a one-punch knockout in modern media, people are like, really? Right. Really? Unless you're trying to portray that your character is such a badass that he can just... Right. But that's... You're right. That's that's saying something. Or or what I... But also, I mean, like, God, I watched a Rocky movie the other day, and there are th- parts about those movies that hold up, but once you know anything about boxing at all, and I don't know a lot, but once you know anything, you just go, oh my God, that's the worst boxing in the world. Like, they just take turns hitting each other. There's zero defense. There's no, you know, like there's, but I don't know. Yeah. I just want to watch more movies where there are just fights that just feel like, Oh, two people desperately trying to stay alive while they're being bombarded with adrenaline, even if they're fucking badasses, you know? And like, if you watch street fights from MMA fighters, they still look a lot like fights from like normal people. They're just kind of cooler, you know? But Yeah. But no one really is going down to one punch. No, 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 no. I also would love to see something where people who get knocked out act like people who get knocked out. Like, you've never seen a movie someone get knocked out and immediately start snoring, right? Which is something that happens, like, a lot is, is um, or, you know, they never just, like, hurt themselves really badly. Like, nobody's knee ever gets taken out in a fight. Or something else that never happens in movies is someone gets knocked out and then pops right back up. Right, right. Like, that they don't even know what happened. Oh, yeah, no, that would be, that would be awesome to see some guy in a movie, like, knock out, a, like, a, like, a nameless thug, and then turn around and start talking and have the guy get up and go, like, what? What? You know? Yeah, that'd be great. That would be great. And then puke, right? Yeah. 
puke? Or have the winner puke. I would love to see a fight in real life or in a movie where like the winner like puked afterwards. Yeah, he adrenaline dumps and pukes. Yeah. Like, cause that's like what happens, you know, nobody walks out of a fight just, I mean, they might go, yeah, for like 30 seconds, but then like, you also like, I mean, you, I've, look, I have not been in many fights in my life, but I've just been around it and I read around it in my life. So I'm sure you, as a security guard, have been in way more, but it's not like, it's not fun. No, no. The, the last thing I want to do ever is get into an actual physical altercation. Yeah. Like I can handle myself. Okay. But I know even if I win, I lose. Right. Right. I mean, best case scenario is like you like don't get sued. You don't break your hand. You don't, you know, like there's, there's a very few, what, what, like what do they call it in a, in a like street fighter when you don't get hit, yeah, you know, like perfect. Yeah. Very few flawless victories. That's, that's the word. That's what I was looking for. Flawless victories. No. And I like, yeah, that's what I really want to try and get on the screen if I if I get this TV show or any TV show or movie on the air is just like a violence that is still exciting and fun, but like has that that air of like of realness and 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 then you know again like very few people pull perfect, um, you know, you know they don't get their dukes up right and then throw these very measured jabs in a street fight like you just don't see it very. No, often. they throw fucking haymakers. They right even like fucking badasses. You know, like you have to have extreme discipline. I mean, you've seen MMA fights round two some of the best fighters in the world lose all discipline and fight you know um and you see people that's i did jujitsu very like i said for a couple of years i never really got my wind up the idea of fighting somebody the way these guys do for 25 minutes is so beyond me because rolling in jujitsu for a minute will exhaust me completely and i have no idea how these guys can do it for 25 minutes yeah, yeah. Five minutes in, I'll be like, hey, man, you win. That's cool. Yeah. Well, I, I, Chael Sonnen one time said in an interview, he was like, oh, yeah, nobody fights at 100% for 25 minutes. Like, there are always parts. Everybody coasts. You just have to pick the right moments and try and figure out when the other guy is coasting, too, because you can't grapple full on for 25 minutes. Like, you just can't do it, you know? And, uh, yeah, that's so beyond me. God, I love it. A good fight is the most fun thing you can see live, in my opinion. And um, I, you know, I, I feel like I'm, I'm not name dropping, but I'm like UFC dropping. I was also there the night that Anderson Silva broke his leg. Oh, shit. I, I watched that show, that fight live, but I wasn't live there. It was again. It's a, the one thing that happens when you're live is you don't have Joe Rogan in your ear. So we we're just like, I mean, you heard it. You heard it. Like, have you ever been in a baseball stadium and heard somebody hit a home run? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like you heard like you just heard the crack and then he fell and he you could hear him screaming. I mean, he was screaming. I would be too. Fuck. Yeah, that's the grossest thing I've ever seen in my life. I'm pretty sure I was screaming and it didn't actually happen to me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. But then they started showing it on replay and people just started going like, stop showing it. Like, because he was still there. They were taking him out on a stretcher and you're like, God, it was the grossest thing. But it's just, it was so real. And, and it was the same night that Ronda Rousey beat the shit out of Misha Tate too. Like, it was a... That was a crazy night. Like, you just go, you see, you know, Ronda Rousey do what she did, and you go, well, they're not going to top that. And then it didn't really top it, but it was really something you saw, and, and, and we're like, I'm not forgetting this night. Like, this is, this is what I'm taking to the grave, you know? No. An amazing MMA fight. There's, you're 100% right. There's just something about it. It's just like, wow, this is something that I could probably never do. No. And the fact that these people are doing it is is mind blowing. 
Um, do you ever see Fedor Emelianenko versus Brett Rogers? Yes. Yes. I have where Brett Rogers is. Uh, he's the he's huge. Big black guy. Big was, black guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And Fedor just drops him from a punch from the hip. Uh-huh. It's just like, and like puts his whole body to it and like almost falls on Rogers as he's knocking him out. Yeah. It's just like, oh my God. Yeah, I got into the sport like after Fedor had kind of had his heyday. So like that was all like me catching up and, and doing homework. Like, um, but that was one of his last fights though, right? He's fighting Mir in April. Well, I meant one of his last, before, before the like... Um, before he started having... Taking losses. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was yeah one of his last few Last Emperor. Like right, I think that was about the time I got into it. Yeah, because he lost to, uh, uh, Verdum, shortly thereafter. Oh, right, right, right. I like Verdum. Oh, Verdum has come so fucking far. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's really a guy who learned how to like use all of his gifts, and and he's like, physically. That's the thing. You like when you're not. When you just see them fight other heavyweights, you don't get a sense of like how fucking scary it would be to run into Verdum in an alley where he's like, he's a fucking monster of a man. And so to learn how to like use footwork and do takedowns and, and to pile that all on top of already this guy who actually should use jujitsu in a street fight because nobody's going to run up and kick him in the back of the head because they're not, they don't want to die, you know? Right. Like he's going to choke your friend to death before you. Right. Like, render him unconscious with kicking him in the head. Right. Also, if you render him unconscious kicking him in the head, he's going to find out who you are later. So, like, you know, don't do it. Don't, don't do it. Don't do it, man. And he's he's does some crazy shit. Like, that fight with Travis Brown, he started off with a jump kick. Oh, that was great. That was great. He's just, like, out of nowhere. He's like, fuck it, I can do this. Yeah. That was a terrible Brazilian accent. But, like, um, yeah. Oh, God. It's so... Yeah, you can't beat that for just, like, the visceral excitement. And, and that's the thing. Like, the Diaz brothers know how to manufacture a fight. And there's always a sense of... What I like about them and George St. Pierre, besides the other stuff we were talking about, is, like, there was always that sense of drama because you always knew George St. Pierre was terrified, which I always found very endearing, is, like, that this guy was terrified, and yet he used that terror to turn himself into, like, that fucking beast. Where he was doing those, like... When he does, like, the... The Superman jab to BJ Penn, and that's their second fight. That is like the beginning of the end where BJ Penn just unravels. Like, I fucking, that's what I like about George St. Pierre is like he would just fucking unravel people. And like he changed careers. And people would go, oh, he didn't finish people. It's like, oh, he finished Josh Koscheck. I don't know if you checked out the rest of Josh Koscheck's career, but he finished. Fucker couldn't fly for six months. Yeah, he had to stay out of country because of that orbital break. Yeah, yeah, he couldn't fly for six months. I think he, I think he finished that guy, you know. And that's what, you see this with like a lot of guys like that who like th- there is a before and after when you fight those guys. And again, like sometimes it's like, oh, they're not scary anymore because George Saint Pierre took them and chewed them up and said, "That's how you beat that guy," you know. And then would go on to the next guy and really never, you know. I, I still think there's a very strong argument for him as the as the goat, you know. It's definitely up there, and he definitely did a lot of good things to cement his career coming back and beating Bisman, that he fought a weight heavier. Yeah. He was dominant. And he finished him. Yeah. Well, finished him. He, has, uh, he, he avenged every loss. He, the, nobody has a win up on him. Um, well, yeah, because the only two losses are Matt Sarah and Matt Hughes. Yeah, and he beat Sarah twice after that. And uh, wait, no, I'm sorry. No, he beat Hughes twice. Yeah, he beat Hughes and, twice. And he beat Sarah in that way of going like, okay, that last one was a fluke. Like, well, and that's the thing. That's what fucked him against Sarah in the first place was he looked past Sarah. Even yeah. when they were doing the play-by-play on the fight with Sarah, they were talking about who he was going to be fighting next. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. And, and I think that was, and people will say, well, he got boring after that. But again, what he did was he, he just, just started like dismantling people after that. And it's just like. Well, he was like, oh, yeah, I'm not invincible. Yeah. This, this chubby New Yorker just knocked me the fuck out. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, like, like I said, the, some of the fights after that were, were a little boring. Um, I've never wanted to watch the Jake Shields fight a second time. Jake Shields was just so fucking dirty in that fight. And I, I, I kind of like him because I, I tend to like all grapplers. But like, um, that one wasn't that good. The Nick Diaz fight was pretty good. Um, Nick tried to engage him and George was like, I'm not playing your games. Yeah. No, and, and you know that's where you, you love Nick Diaz when he does this stupid shit. But I love it. I love it when it works with the Diaz brothers, and it doesn't always work. And fair enough, I can't blame the other fighter for not playing the game. But like, oh, I want him to play the game. I want him to fucking think that oh, I can't box with this guy. Like, I mean, McGregor wanted out of that fight, that first one. Like, oh yeah, shoot for a sloppy takedown and get choked out. Mm-hmm. But I tell you, you know, I mean, that was that was as into a fight as I've ever been. And listening to the play by play afterwards, and when people were breaking down just how thoroughly Nate's jiu-jitsu game dismantled McGregor that quickly, where he did that one, he secured the rear naked choke with a punch to the jaw. Like, you know, he just knocked his jaw aside so he could get the, you know, get the thumb razored in under the jaw so he could, like, really lock in the choke. It was just like, he, he you know, he hooked his leg to stop him from pulling guard. It was, like, a perfect performance from a guy who, like, d- flips double birds and, like, fucking has, like, do- goofy-ass fucking weed clothes and shit like that. But also... Teaches children jujitsu, right? And the fact that again, like I, Conor McGregor, I totally understand why he's a star. He is fucking charismatic. I mean, I, I'm sure you've been in the room with like there are people who are like famous and attractive, and then there are stars. And when you're in the room with a star, you know the difference because you're like, I can't stop looking at that person. And, and Conor McGregor has that, and it's really rare. But like, so I get why he's popular, but I fucking hate him. And I, I yeah, I, so I was that was that was like to me like I think one of the reasons I have been less into MMA since then is I knew that I was never going to have a better moment than when Diaz started kicking his ass in that fight. I don't know, man. I love Khabib so much. He's great. I, I haven't actually. I this last fight snuck up on me. I haven't watched it. But. Oh, it's uh, it's available on Fight Pass in like eight days. Okay, yeah, I still have Fight Pass, so I should check it out because I do. Look, Conor McGregor will never get in the ring with that guy. No. Hell, uh, Tyron Woodley is working on TMZ these days. Oh, yeah? And one of the other TMZ sports guys were like, so, Khabib, how do you think about going up to 170 and fighting Tyron? And Tyron's like, no, no. (laughs) I want no part of this. (laughs) I just love when I learned. The best thing I ever heard about Khabib was when you found out, oh, you know that viral video of the kid wrestling a bear? That's Khabib. Like, he fucking got his start literally wrestling bears. What the fuck are you? Like, what the fuck is Conor McGregor after For that? fuck's sake, uh, Michael Johnson, he's talking to Dana White as he's dismantling him. <laughs> like, how demoralizing is that? Like, this guy is wrestling me to a, a standstill where I cannot do anything. Yeah. And he is having a conversation with someone else while he does it. <laughs> That's what, you know, I think, I'm not a baseball guy, but I use this analogy anyway. Like, I think once you really get into grappling and MMA, it's like how I hear there are people who can watch a baseball game with no hits and think like it's fascinating because it's a pitcher's duel and all this thing. You know, I don't get that at all. But I know there are people who just want them to like fucking stand them up. And it's just like, no, man. Once you learn about grappling, it is so fascinating. And Khabib is so good at it. It's like him and Demi and Amaya are the two guys where it's just like, I love watching somebody just fucking put on a clinic like that. So in, in the Edson Barboza fight, the Khabib's most recent victory, yeah. he did this little thing that was so slick. I don't know if anyone, everyone caught it. 
So Barbosa had like an 86% takedown defense coming into that fight. Yeah. He's, he doesn't have that anymore. No, not at all. Uh, he's propped up against the cage. He's doing, you know, he's going wide so Khabib can't get a double leg. Khabib steps on his foot and slides his foot forward. Mm-hmm. And then takes him down. Oh, he like traps the foot. Like, yeah, he traps his foot with his foot and then slides it out from the cage. Oh, okay. So he... And pulled him off balance that way and then took him down. Ooh, ooh. Like, that is so slick. Fuck, I love shit like that. And it's subtle. And yeah. the average fan is not going to be like, what the fuck just happened there? Right, and that, I, I, like I said, I don't have that understanding of striking. You know, like I, I can, that's good striking, that's bad striking. But I, I can't do that kind of breakdown with, with striking the way I can with, with grappling. And that's why I just, I love shit like that. Where it's just like, oh, he fucking got every fucking, he knew everything he was going to do on a level that his, he doesn't think about it. Like Demi and Maya, if you show him tape, he can tell you what he's doing. But in the moment, he's not thinking about it. He's just doing it the way that you reach for your car keys and start your car without thinking, now I pick up my car keys, now I move, you know. Exactly. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's, again, like, I trained for, like, three years, and I never got that kind of level of hardly anything, you know, other than, like, recovering guard when you need to is something you learn pretty quickly, and you just learn that you have muscles that you don't use in your day-to-day life, you know, like those shrimping muscles, where it's just, like, that move, for people at home that sucked, but, you know, deal with it, Um, but, yeah, no, I mean, it's a cliche to call it chess, and I actually think it's not very accurate, because chess is static and, and grappling is like always moving and two people can do two things at the same time and you still need to be ready and uh i don't know man it, it, in the context of a safe environment like a school it is great for like we we're talking about all the noise of this world and like when somebody's trying to fucking rear naked choke you you are not thinking about donald trump you know and and that's like a beautiful thing in this world to just like just be thinking about that one thing of like this motherfucker's trying to kill me. I know he's not trying to kill me, but you know. But your body doesn't necessarily know that. No, and it's all fascinating how you can maintain that while still not going 100%, you know, and and knowing there are things you can't do and not kicking the guy in the nuts when you have, you know, like a chance and all that and um, knowing when, like to let go of the moment somebody taps and all that, you know. It's all, I don't know, man. That's fun shit. I wonder if that would work if like someone Rene could choke you in a real street fight and you just tapped if they just let go of you without thinking about it. I think if you're fighting the right guy, it might work, you know. Just be but, like, oh, they let go, sucker. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I'm sure you've done this. I do. I, I will watch tapes. I also do like to find like jujitsu street fights where somebody actually does use jujitsu in the kind of street fight where people are obeying the rules of the of like everybody watch, nobody do anything, and then it is like you go, oh yeah, no, it totally fucking works. Like, but they're really only like three moves. If you're really just training jujitsu for the street, it would all be like transitions and, and things like that. And then the rear naked choke, uh, triangle choke, and armbar. And those would be, and maybe, I don't know footlocks, but I bet footlocks might be in there too. But like. And the problem with footlocks is you're liable to get kicked in the head. Well, that's a good point. So fuck footlocks. But really, no, I mean, if you watch like jujitsu street fights, they all end in one of those three moves. Yeah, I feel like an arm triangle might be effective too. Well, yeah, an arm triangle. I could see that too. But like, really, if you're in a position to do an arm triangle, you're on top. You kind of got them. There's probably other things you're going to do in a fight besides, unless you just catch that arm when they're swinging at you, and then you can kind of, you know, catch it. Well, because I don't really, like, in a real fight, I don't want to mount you and try to ground and pound you, because when you move your head, I'm going to punch the pavement. Well, that's a good point. That's a good point. But, yeah, I I feel like there are so many, like, different chokes. And I only trained gi jiu-jitsu. If I get back into it, I want to do no gi, because, again, not that I ever think I'm going to be in a fight, but I like the illusion that I'm training to be in a fight, you know, and the, and people don't have geese in real life and, and most clothing don't really translate because you would rip a lot of clothing if you were trying to do a lot of jujitsu stuff with it. 
No, definitely, definitely. My one of my buddies keeps fucking with me though. He's like, "Fuck with me one more at the bar when you're wearing your leather jacket, I'll destroy you." <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. I'll put you in a fucking spider guard. You won't know what the fuck's going on. <laughs> oh, fucking. Oh, what's the move where the people the barambolo? I'm gonna barambolo behind you, and you're just gonna be really confused, man. Just keep the leather jacket on. That's all I need you to do. <laughs> <laughs> just keep the leather jacket on. But we're actually a little bit over time. So, oh, wow. How, what, what is time? Uh, uh, we only do about two hours. We're oh, wow. Two and a half already. Wow. Y'all could have watched the fucking, no, not The Godfather, but you could have watched The Departed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, as we like to say, it's last call around here. Fair enough, man. Thanks. This was fun. Jordan, where can the audience find you in your various wares? Um, I mean, the, you know, like I said, I have a, my novel, She Writes Shotgun, is out now. I have a short story collection called Love and Other Wounds, which is also all blood and guts and, and, and bad people. Um, I'm on Twitter at Jordan underscore Harper. Real quick, where can they buy the books? Oh, well, Amazon or, you know... Um, Hardback's out now. Um, you can maybe still find it at Barnes & Noble. Paperback comes out in March if you want to save a few bucks. I certainly wouldn't begrudge anybody. Wait until paperback in March. Uh, it did just get nominated for Best New Novel Edgar Award. I've sold the film rights um, and written the screenplay for, for a movie producer, so hopefully someday it'll be on movie screens. And um, other than that, stay tuned. Maybe LA Confidential will be a TV show, and then, and then you tune in to CBS. Awesome. Awesome. And the social medias? Oh yeah, Twitter is the one that I, I really use. But like I, I'm, I, I find that if you if you like weird crime stuff, um, stuff about Chinese kung fu movies and anarchist uh, political retweets, I'm your boy. Awesome, awesome, Jordan. Thank you for doing this. Hey, thanks for having me, man. This is fun. As always, you can find me at Matt underscore Slayer on Twitter, Matt Slayer on Instagram, Matt F and Slayer on Facebook, Matt Slayer on Snapchat. You can find the podcast at and now we drink on Twitter and now we drink underscore on Instagram. Hey, stay filthy, y'all.